This podcast may contain explicit language and themes, so listener discretion is advised. Ill-advised, misinformed, our half-baked opinions will be performed. Are you ready? Is the mic on? Welcome to the hill to die on. This episode, I'm here with friend and oceanographer of the show, Sarah, who hosts It Came From The Sea, a podcast that shares amazing, complicated, and infuriating facts about the ocean. Sarah was kind enough to have me on the show a few months back to talk about Marie Tharp, a woman who was pivotal in the world's understanding of the seafloor, mapping, and plate tectonics. I would encourage everyone to go listen to that episode, which I will provide a link for in the show notes. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Hello, Josie. Thank you for having me. Of course. I've been looking forward to having you on for a long time, but finally, we have made it happen. (laughs) We talked about doing this. I think it was at the end of last year at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just like all of my plans. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, same. Same. But that means that I have spent seven plus months seeing stuff about the topic of, of this podcast and then specifically like telling myself like, no, no, not yet. I have well, like I have my own background <laughs> knowledge. I don't need to add to that just yet. Well, you can be launched into that in probably like half an hour or so. So <laughs> you can be free. This episode, Sarah and I are asking the question, are aquariums ethical? Of course, nothing is ever truly ethical under capitalism, but we figured mm. we'd explore the topic anyway, looking at both large corporate aquariums like, you know, SeaWorld, as well as home aquariums specifically. Before anyone messages us, both aquariums and aquaria are acceptable. So we might flick between (laughs) the two. Also, don't be a jerk. Sarah, you do know more about the ocean than I do, and I believe you probably have way more experience with aquariums than I do. Do you think aquariums are ethical? I would say I think aquariums can be ethical, but very often just absolutely are not. And right. I don't I don't know that there's much of a middle ground between aquariums that are doing doing everything they can to operate ethically and aquariums that just do not give a shit and are essentially torturing their animals. Right. So I suppose should we break it down into like maybe we could both talk about large corporate ones first and then we can sort of talk about home aquariums. Would that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think cool. that works. So what's your experience with large sort of corporate aquariums and like quote-unquote wildlife sanctuaries so growing up I'm from a pretty big family that didn't always have a lot of money to throw around and going to aquariums is not cheap most of the time and you know not without reason necessarily so growing up I really liked sea creatures but I don't think I ever like I can't remember more than like one time my family went to an aquarium and it was like really sad really small dark like roadside Oh, attraction no. feeling thing I'm this is you know I was like 12 so the memories are like hazy but I remember it being very dark and not having many tanks but there was a giant pacific octopus in one tank what like alive yeah 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 swimming around as a child like kind of during like peak like normal person aquarium times I don't think I really got much time around aquariums mm-hmm. but as an adult, when I was 18, I spent a year and a half going to school in Monterey, California. And, you know, Monterey Bay Aquarium is one of the most, like, famous aquariums in the world. And I did, like, I went there one time and then the same day bought an, an annual pass. 
Aww. And so I just went, uh, yeah, I went there a lot. It, it was just like an easy way for like for me if I needed to be like out of my room to kind of go and like kill an afternoon. Was that explicitly for profit or do you know if that was like a sanctuary or how that's set up? Yeah, Monterey Bay Aquarium is kind of unique. Actually, it's unique in a lot of ways, like oceanography and marine biology terms, but it's also fairly unique in the way it operates, which means I ended up kind of accidentally really spoiled where... It isn't, it isn't a for-profit. It's actually associated with, I would have to look it up, but I think it's UCLA. Oh, wow. It's associated with a big university where it is kind of the marine research offshoot. It also works with Scripps Institute of Oceanography. They work out of Monterey Bay for some of their projects. If you're a marine biology or oceanography graduate student in like middle California, they have a lot of like research opportunities for students. So it is primarily a research facility that kind of uses the aquarium as its education and outreach program and also to like help fund all of the facilities that it needs to take care of the animals. They also do a lot of marine rescue and marine rehabilitation. Oh, so shit. when I was there, there was actually a period of time. So this is great white sharks can't be kept in aquariums. Do, do people try? Yes, they have. They've learned not to so much, but they definitely tried a lot in the past and they just, they die. They reach a certain age, they reach a certain size and there's a variety of reasons for it, but like they won't survive. And when I was in Monterey Bay, they actually had a baby great white shark. Oh my God. And this was like a huge thing. And the reason they had it was because it had been found, I believe entangled in a net or, or otherwise injured. Right. And so they put it in... They have like a really big open water tank. I think it's one of the biggest tanks in the world. And they had it in there just to like rehabilitate it. And it was, I believe it was the longest they, like a great white had ever been kept in a tank because it was a baby. And so it was there for some number of months and then they released it back out into the ocean. And that's really how Monterey Bay tries to operate with all of its larger aquatic life is, you know, if, if they have them, like they have sea turtles, they have otters, almost always they're animals that were found entangled, found otherwise injured, brought to them specifically for rehabilitation. And then as soon as they are rehabilitated and that, you know, not just physically in terms of their health rehabilitated, Monterey Bay is also really dedicated to making sure wild animals get to stay wild. So, you know, as they're like, yeah, as they're kind of helping nurse something back to like physical health, they're also trying to make sure that when they do enrichment, it's not just kind of the standard enrichment to keep an animal from basically becoming depressed it's also the kind of enrichment that helps transition an animal back into being in the wild and so that like and you know this is something that i will look into but i think it's kind of the peak for what what aquariums could be if if they wanted to yeah that feels very similar to i don't have much experience with aquariums but one of the wildlife sanctuaries like my favorite Mm. one I've ever been to like it sounds similar in how it's run where it's like their goal is to never keep the animals yeah and they'll only really keep an animal if it's like for instance there's a three-legged echidna they found it and healed it but they know that if it was going to go back out into the wild it would surely die right and it's quite happy being hand-fed ants every day <laughs> by humans. Like, it, again, it's not cheap to go there. It's like 75 right. bucks. But right. all the money is to run the facility. And also they run the only, like, 24-hour wildlife sort of emergency hotline and hospital. Oh, nice. So, like, oh, yeah. I, yeah. So I think there is a way to 
to do it ethically. It's, and it's Monterey a Bay lot sounds of work. awesome. Yeah. That sounds sick. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's kind of not, I don't know if funny is the right word for it. And, like, not funny, haha, more like funny. Oh. So, Monterey Bay was the first big aquarium that I saw. And honestly, like, it's one of those things where, like, reflecting back on it, I can kind of see how much I liked ocean imagery from a very young age. But mm-hmm. Monterey Bay was probably the first time when I got to be around the ocean and ocean science enough to sort of start to form like an actual interest in like specifically ocean science. So definitely credit my time there. But then the opposite side of that and kind of like where my bias towards, towards my extreme, either like Monterey Bay can be good or all other aquariums that they don't meet, like some version of that standard are mostly shit is that, Mm -hmm. A few years later, I would spend time in Okinawa. Okinawa is another area of the world that has like super like unique marine environments and ecology where because of where it's situated pretty much not like quite in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, but pretty far away from other like main land masses. Right. There's a lot of tropical fish there that you don't find as much in other places. Or if you do find it, it's not quite in the same levels of abundance. So I was there. I would snorkel a lot. One of the things the area is famous for is whale sharks. And a big part of Okinawan tourism, like that kind of campaign, is Mm -hmm. to tell you about the whale sharks that they have at the aquarium. And beyond that, at this point, I had realized that I just like going to aquariums. So at one point, I... You know, me and a couple of friends, we were living on kind of the south side of the island and the aquarium's up on the north side. So we rented a car... We drove up to the aquarium for the day. It just immediately felt off, like walking (laughs) into the aquarium. And it's okay. There are stereotypes about Japan. I'm going to tell you right now that one of the stereotypes that unfortunately, not unfortunately, that just does hold very true is that mascots, like mascot culture is very big uh, in a lot of parts of Japan that are very tourist heavy. So you're walking into this aquarium and you're seeing just like a bunch of cute cartoony statues of animals and like signage with like cartoony mascots on it. But in a way that it just made me feel like a little, it was for me, it was a little off putting, I guess, because it did feel like, Oh, you're kind of focused on branding. Right. Like it felt a bit commercialized compared. Yeah. 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 Not that if you go to Monterey Bay aquarium, it doesn't feel very like commercial just in a different way. And so you walk in, and there's kind of two parts to Okinawa's aquarium. There's the inside part that really is, like, what they advertise. And then there's this outside part that they don't really advertise, but is also pretty big. And you go through the inside part first, and there there are just a ton of fish. A ton of different fish, a ton of different fish exhibits. But, again, pretty quickly I started realizing that, like, a lot of these tanks had a lot of fish, but they didn't really have places for the fish to you know, to hide or to oh. nest or to... A lot of it was sort of bare tanks. No, uh, no, no. You can't do that. I know. Right. And I was just like, oh, I don't like that. They have a ton of sharks, not great whites, but a ton of just different sharks in, a, in several tanks. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being struck by like first, first initially, I was just like, there are a lot of sharks in this tank. like too many (laughs) too many sharks in this tank a lot of them are very aggressive and very territorial and they had some pretty aggressive species in this tank like it was a mixture and then i realized the sharks didn't have teeth what so sharks will regrow teeth if they're lost and 
I, I'm pretty sure I read on one of the signs there, but it looked as if they had been removing their teeth so they couldn't bite each other. Wait, as in the humans had been removing their teeth? Yes. Yeah. The way you would, de- well, the way you should never declaw a cat. Um, oh it was as if they God. were treating, yeah, their teeth in the same way. Oh. And then you get to the tank with the whale sharks. And by that point, by the time you get there, I'm already like kind of in a panic because I'm like, wait a like I finally in my head kind of, yeah, you know, all the all the gears sort of like clicked into place and started going, and I was like, oh wait, why why would you ever put a whale shark in a tank, right? Yeah. Like, they're massive. I, I don't think I have I, like because you like the whale shark tank, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like I know, right? I, I guess in my head, I'm like, surely they've just got like, I don't know what I thought, but I hadn't really stopped to think about how gross Same. that is just yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same. It is their most popular thing. It's the thing they advertise. It is a huge tank. That is like cylindrical. And in it, they don't just have a whale shark. They had three whale sharks. Oh, no. Several giant rays. So like the the rays that are like, you know, 12, 15 feet across, uh, like like five meters or so, like oh, huge. Beautiful. And dolphins, oh, at no. least one dolphin, and then just a bunch of other other creatures, right? So it is a full tank. It looks like a snow globe. I hate this. <laughs> Oh yeah, right. Because they're one. There are a bunch of a bunch of marine life that don't really exist in the same ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So you have like rays and skates that kind of can go into the ocean, open ocean, and they will, but they stay more coastal. And then you have yeah. whale sharks, which are traverse the entire ocean and dive like you know, hundreds and hundreds of meters. I'm just thinking, like, obviously you have this like weird mix of of species that don't normally go together but what's that tank like how do they keep up the like are there like pressure requirements that whale sharks need or like how do they how could you possibly account for the temperature needs of all those different species i don't like it's fine because they can all exist in the surface ocean but it, it feels like you know if you have a human that's in a that's used to differences in temperature throughout the year and then you just put them in like a room that is the same temperature all of the Mm -hmm. time right like it's not going to kill you but at some point you are going to like it's that kind of like the sameness and in addition to everything else that like the the lack of stimulus everywhere else in the tank that's Mm going to like it's going to really wear on you right it's kind of like well it might not physically hurt them Mm. like i guess if you want to do the whole you know mental physical as if they're two separate Right. things but like right. yeah yeah mentally and emotionally because like i imagine well, most of these species do have rich emotional life well at least yeah. some of them would yeah yeah whale sharks travel the entire like pacific ocean they're not creatures that stay in like one area mm. and the aquarium did have like i believe it had five whale sharks that it had captured oh. and what it did was it had like a an open ocean pen that was like a netted pen that was much bigger and they would swap them out every so often but like uh. that's better than keeping them in in the tank all the time but you're still you know, the, the transport would still be traumatic in its own ways like you know, physically and like yeah mentally for these animals like mm-hmm. how are you getting them in and out of this tank and what about like you know because i know they're not whales but like do whale sharks operate in pods at all like schools or they i believe they can i think they're that one of the one of the types of animals that will come together and be social for periods of their life and then spend periods of their life pretty independent okay okay but it's 
it's still just, gross. It's so I was small. just wondering. It's such if a, that yeah, was. it's like keeping a human in a closet because they all they can do is swim in circles. Like they're too big to do anything mm. else. Them, the giant mantas, all they like they're too big to kind of like try to swim in the middle of the tank at all. So it is just doing circles. Oh my uh, God. The dolphin that I mentioned would like constantly attack all of the oh. other fish, but especially the whale sharks. And so they had like visible scrapes and bites on their fins from the dolphin. And I mean, the dolphin, like dolphins are assholes. Like, don't get me wrong, but it's yes. not <laughs> right. Like it's not, I'm not mad at the dolphin for doing this. They no. didn't choose to be trapped in here with nothing to do. Yes. And so like that, that's the inside. And I know I'm, I've gone on about this for a while but this is like pretty eye-opening for me and i'll like the outside bit was worse the outside bit was where they kind of kept the animals that it looked like they basically forgot about oh so no it was a series of like you know small pools pool-sized tanks full of like oh manatees God. or like <gasps> one no! dozens of turtles like dozens and like a very small like terrarium style like some some dirty water on one end and then some like kind of fake concrete beach on the other and it was just fuck i know and it was it was just kind of the thing that really made me realize that i had been to zoos and i had been to aquariums that were at least trying like i'd been to the organ zoo a lot growing up and like at least trying to give animals like an appropriate habitat and this is kind of my, like, first experience as an adult realizing that, like, oh, no, like, that's not a requirement. It's not a requirement for companies to care about the health or the well-being of their animals just because they're using them to make a profit. That's fucking grim. No, I, like, I think it's great that you've sort of gone further in depth about this experience because I guess it paints a pretty good picture about, like, where you've got, you know, on one end this place that is obviously providing entertainment for people but that's also just being used as a way to fund all the other projects right you know whereas this feels like explicitly just for human consumption i guess yeah yeah that's really fucking bleak you mentioned sea world and yeah, we can get into that whole thing if we need to but a lot of these organizations that are not treating their animals well when they get called out on it Mm-hmm. they basically try to say that oh it's for education like we're we're not doing this for profit we're doing this to like educate the public on the you know the majesty of these animals but oh that's bullshit basically that's <laughs> such bullshit that's like i mean I it's obviously not the same but it's like i'm thinking of like the breast cancer awareness foundation oh, like yeah. awareness drives it's like no no yeah well you're money to spending educate. half of your money to like sue anybody else who does like a similar kind of awareness campaign yes yes and it's like okay we're we're aware what what now like what are you doing yeah right and monterey bay aquarium will like they do actual education drives and that they like go out and they work with organizations that you know go into schools and go into communities to try to raise awareness and also like drive people towards campaigns that are actively working for environmental rights in the u.s and around the world or kind of teaching the next generations like how to be more responsible and how to be a better like global community member when it comes to being around the oceans and being around That's ocean amazing. life. And yeah, the aquarium in, ok- in Okinawa was absolutely not doing that. They would not. No, no. Oh my gosh. No. That's fucking grim. And I guess part two of that is like, it seems like you kind of went to a glorified version of just a home aquarium, maybe in the first your first yeah. experience <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah do you have an opinion do you think home aquariums can be ethical honestly if anything i would say that's a smaller scale individually but i think it might even have like a bigger possibility of 
creating harm for mm-hmm. marine environments and for marine life. It's hard, right? Because like nobody needs to have a home aquarium, right? Like no. I like looking at fish. I understand how like calming it can be to just have like an aquarium full of little guys that you're looking at. Yeah. And I think there probably are species that it's pretty easy to to cultivate mm-hmm. and kind of like raise for the intention of putting into a home aquarium. A lot of people have like brine shrimp aquariums still, which is like sea monkeys and like Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't have a problem with like sea monkeys just spending their days like chilling in an aquarium. Cuz they don't need a lot of space and they're also it seems like they yeah. like, reproduce fairly quickly. Right. But then there's people who put animals into tanks that are probably not good for them either they're too small or like a lot of people have beta fish and oh yeah right and like people don't understand that like betas actually do need a lot of stimulus like they do need places to hide and places Mm -hmm. to like sit and be kind of in a quiet area they do like they are very territorial and they like a lot more space than people tend to to realize because if you look up like a beta fish tank online that's going to show you basically like an empty tank yes like with one fish and maybe a handful of marbles at the bottom. There probably is a way to find fish that are both ethically sourced and to provide a really good habitat for them. Mm-hmm. But you also, because it's there's so many individual people potentially buying fish that were either harvested from their, like in Hawaii, right? People will go off into the reefs in Hawaii and they'll capture fish from the reefs. That's not cool. And like, <laughs> right? Like, what are you doing? That's not okay. Are they allowed to do that? No. No, like, it's absolutely illegal. No, they do it anyway. Yeah, depending on the fish, it's, it's illegal. The Great Barrier Reef does have a similar problem, and, you know, Finding Nemo uh, did actually yeah, show course. a version Holy of shit. that. Holy yeah. shit! You're right! Yeah. Oh, damn! So, it's one of those times when, like, kind of the opposite, I guess, of, like, the way we think about cats and dogs, where, like, you don't you don't want to go to a puppy mill. Mm-hmm. You do, I'm telling you, I guess, I think, at least my, my opinion now, my uneducated opinion now is like maybe fish mills are the way to go i think that's my take too and i'm not saying i guess again like when we talk about anything that's ethical or unethical of course it's subjective and some people are just like gonna be hardlining you know and that's that's fine but i think if we're talking about comparatively i i think i agree with you in terms of like if there's a a way to cultivate a species that is doing fine in the wild yeah, I guess harvesting from the wild, it feels like overstepping it to me, I guess, is yeah. my take. I guess, because if you think about it, it's it's just so different than fishing for, like, tuna or something that you would eat, where, like, it is better to, in moderation, kind of fish for the wild tuna, because mm-hmm. the farms are kept in such gross condition that, mm-hmm. and this is all, like, all of this is, like, very dependent on a myriad of factors. So I'm, like, way oversimplifying here. But yeah, it yeah. can be better to look for fresh-caught tuna if you can find it. If you know, like, the company is part of the Ocean Safe Network, if they're, you know, very conscious of, like, how much they're catching and they mm-hmm. only catch, like, adults that are within, like, there's a lot of rules that can make it actually fine, like, Fine in terms of, like, species conservation. Fine in terms of, like, making sure you're not damaging the habitat to Mm -hmm. go out and, like, fish for tuna and salmon in the wild. Yeah. But a lot of the fish that we keep in tanks are reef fish. So (laughs) the reef is a very different environment. And our reefs are already suffering so much. I can't imagine, (laughs) like, sending people out to go and dive and capture fish from are already very like delicately balanced environments is, is ever going to be particularly good for them. And how many people who have reef fish 
in their tanks also care about keeping a healthy sort of like reef environment right not understanding that sort of symbiotic i guess relationship or like you know how they work together my only experience with home aquariums it's not really an aquarium but i know that hermit crabs are like oh yeah i used to have rest in peace i used to have Mm. a few hermit crabs and i tried really 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 hard to give them a good home sort of the same problem with like the beta fish Mm. i don't know about in the u.s but like you could go to a pet store and they're being sold in literal plastic cups yep same yeah same here and you know hermit crabs i've seen like basically like little tables with like sides on them and they just like sort of just dump them on a thin layer of sand and just let them chill out with painted shells and everything like that which is like a huge no-no but before I got these hermit crabs I was like I would really like them but I want to take care of them and I did so much Mm. research on it and even then our sand was slightly too deep because hermit crabs love to burrow in the sand ours was slightly too deep and there was a pocket of water that was like there and not visible from our side of the tank and it like obviously got gross and I guess an illness was sort of spread and it was really horrible it like took them one by one over the course of a week and it was devastating to us but then also in that period of time while like having these hermit crabs which are coastal but are like land hermit crabs so they only spend a small amount of time in the water I found out that like in Australia because this particular species is the only one you're allowed to own in Australia Mm. There are, quote-unquote, very strict regulations about how you can harvest them. So that all hermit crabs, at least in Australia, are harvested from the wild. Mm, Okay. Yeah, and that made me uncomfortable to begin with. And I looked at the regulations and it was like, you're only allowed to harvest, like, depending on the size of your business, like 30 to 60k a year. Uh I was like, what the fuck? That's a lot. And a lot of these are exported. But yeah, like, still, even though you're you know, supposedly harvesting them well or, like, in a way that keeps the population sort of going, they're still ending up in whether domestic or overseas markets where they're being kept as pets. Some people do eat them. I'm not one to judge, like, that. That's sort of, like... Right, yeah, it's a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah. But, like, just the homes they're going to, like, so many people buy one or two crabs, but they're colony animals yeah and and at least i guess my point was like so i know that there are regulations that technically don't hurt the environment but it's where they end up that's an issue right yeah yeah they're tropical animals so you need to make sure they have enough humidity otherwise they can like they often die from like basically they dry out right but i do know sort of during that period of time i was looking Like I followed, I think they're called Crab Street Station or something. And they're these people who have heaps of hermit crabs, a lot of aquatic ones. Mm. And they're trying to become like the world's first hermit crab breeders because it does take a really long time. But they said, ultimately, if we can stop people from like, they're just being collected from beaches and sold en masse. And they're just like, we want to be able to like, know that these crabs were looked after well it is really hard and time intensive to do but then like they're also responsible to like if they're successful they can like make sure that they're going to good homes and like their time yeah because like hermit crabs can live up to like 60 years i don't know if people oh, know wow. that oh wow oh yeah. wow i oh was shocked gosh. because i only thought they last like 
so many people, it's like, oh, yeah, it lasted maybe a year max. Right. Well, I, I thought like, you know, five, six years seemed like a good a good life for a hermit crab. Mm-hmm. But that's Darned. decades. Wow. So that, yeah. I mean, it's they're setting it up the way like people should understand, like adopting a dog. Right. Mm hmm. People should take that kind of consideration when adopting, like, any animal. Yeah. And so setting up, I like that. I like that they're setting it up like an adoption and not, like, you're buying a product. Yes. Yes. I know that there was funding for a a hermit crab adoption agency in Australia. Oh. But, but, and I thought that was so cute, but I don't know what happened. I think someone made fun of it in, like, an article. Like, what are you doing funding a hermit crab adoption agency thinking it was, like, a fake business? I don't know if that's why it never took off. But, like, yeah, I was like, oh, shit. Okay. I think I've seen similar stuff about betta fish where, like... (gasps) I don't want to say like activists, but we're like, you know, marine, marine biologists, marine conservationists, like people who understand that like, okay, all right, look, fish and crustaceans do not have the same emotional experience of the world that a human does. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they don't have an emotional understanding of the world or that they're like completely incapable of, of pain or discomfort or mm-hmm. like trauma responses. Right. It's not as complex as a lot of other animals, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. You know, if you can be cruel to one animal, you can be cruel to any animal. And it's. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean we treat them all the same, but it does mean that we at least like should have some base level of dignity that we're trying to give the animals in our life. Exactly. I guess it's like for the same reason, you know, whether or not people choose to eat meat or not. It's like, well, of course I would rather eat meat from an animal that has been treated with like as much dignity as the yeah. as can be afforded to it while also knowing that you know of course i acknowledge that there's a bit of hypocrisy there and like i don't think it's necessarily like hypocrisy because animals do like in- including humans and are like all of our ancestors like do consume meat mm-hmm. and i think it is just like it, you know it's a part of a lot of indigenous cultures but it is just important to, to when we can, obviously we all live in a society. I know I've seen the memes. <laughs> it's important when we can to try to be able to seek out like flesh from animals and products from animals that have been treated well. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm not super wealthy. Like I'm not doing like financially doing so well that I can go and like, if I wanted to like buy the nicest cut of fish or buy like the most ethically like produced anything mm-hmm. part of that means that i avoid eating fish i'm not pretty sure that it came from ocean safe certified area uh, in hawaii that's really easy yeah. when i was living in seattle i did actually have to pay attention to labels on things i did actually have to like if i you know was going to a sushi restaurant there are websites you can go to try to look up whether or not they source things ethically and like a lot of times it's not much more expensive and when it was that much more expensive i just didn't eat huh. it to be honest and that's like yeah, we have those options. And then I would say kind of like trying to, I guess, bring it back to aquariums is like a similar thing, right? Like, if you want to go to an aquarium, and you want to take your kids to an aquarium, or you want to have a home aquarium, and you can't afford to kind of do it in a way that feels more ethical to you, you always have the option of not doing it and like, or just trying to balance the good that you think it would do in your life and the lives of those around you and the harm that it might you know, be indicative of in some other aspect of these animals' lives. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very fair call to make. And I think (laughs) despite this being, you know, a podcast allegedly about severe hot takes, I think it has sort of, over the course of doing Hillpod, has sort of like 
brought me to that sort of philosophy yeah. in general. Like, just be like, yeah, we, we're all just trying our best here. <laughs> a lot of times, um, that's all we can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess, like, that's the difference is, like, you know, obviously, in terms of larger aquariums, the onus is absolutely. on the people running it to do better. And I guess I'm a huge believer in, like, voting with your dollar. So there are some places that I will refuse right. to give money to. Even if my right. child was like, hey, I want to go here, I'd be like, hey... And, like, kids are actually super understanding if you explain oh, absolutely. this sort of thing to them. So, like, I would be almost certain if I explained to my child, hey, we can't go to this place, actually, because they don't take very good care of their animals and that I don't agree with that. I almost certain my son yeah, would be like, right. oh, that's bad. <laughs> no way. Like, no, no, yeah. There is a, a period of time where I was around a little kid that was, yeah, like, I think four when I met them up to like six and a half and mm-hmm. we had those conversations essentially like I at some point had made a point in my own like personal understanding of the world that I was going to talk to kids not as if they were adults because they're not but I was going to give them the same like level of like information that I have right I'm not going to hold back information I'm just going to maybe try mm-hmm. to phrase it in a way that's you know not as graphic essentially yes <laughs> yeah absolutely. there was a time when they asked about doing a whale watching tour because they saw advertisements for it you know, I was like, well, like, you know, here's sometimes whale watching tours are pretty good because they they're really careful. But this company, like I looked them up and a lot of the practices they're doing are actually like not really good for the whales. Like they had the type of boat that is particularly loud. Oh, I mean, wow. there's laws, right? And like how you're supposed to operate. But the laws only do so much, even if they're followed. And so like this particular mm-hmm. one used a boat that I like understood to be kind of loud rather than like a hydrofoil or something with a Mm -hmm. like a newer engine that would be a lot quieter and a lot less damaging for the whale's ears Mm -hmm. i think they had a history of of like quote unquote accidentally getting too close to the whales and so when i explained that to to this child immediately right like you're saying like they were they were completely understanding they didn't hold it against me they weren't like kicking and screaming because i said no (laughs) after that anytime they saw an ad for something related we would just have a conversation about it. And actually it was like mm-hmm. you know, way more rewarding to be able to talk to a kid and have them not do the thing that a lot of adults do, which is is look at this as some sort of political grievance or just making excuses to say no to something and, and instead be able to have you know, a conversation mm-hmm. with, with a very young person. Yeah, I guess, I mean, this is sort of on topic because it is ocean related. And I guess it does tie back to just like the idea of treating animals and the environment with respect so the other day i was fortunate enough to go on a garo culture tour i was up in what's known as like the whitsundays up towards the great barrier reef and yeah i went on this indigenous tour around to different islands and i was there with my son and we we're on one particular island and yeah so many incredible shells like this is a marine park oh my gosh that is a future episode is like my position on like nature oh, parks, yeah, yeah. like sanctuaries yes, and yes. stuff. Yes, yes, I have complicated mm-hmm. feelings on those. I do too. <laughs> yeah. But so we were with two people. One was the traditional custodian who was like our tour guide mm. and the other one was like a skipper who, you know, not supposed to take anything from a marine park, but this skipper right. who is a oh, white man said, oh, like, you're not supposed to, but it is okay if you take one or two shells. Mm. And mm. well, and, and I actually had this like moment of conflict because of my overall position on nature parks and reserves but my kid was so excited found these beautiful pieces of like you know washed up coral and some cool looking shells of which there were plenty the ground was made of it 
But then I had this thing where I'm like, okay, I'm going to let you make this decision, but I don't feel comfortable with this because I personally think that it wouldn't have damaged the environment for us to take it home. But it was like, there's a larger point here, especially on an Indigenous cultural tour with the person who's the traditional custodian not explicitly giving us the permission as well. I'm like, I mean, I know I do this on a daily basis by living in Australia, but it's like, well, you wouldn't go to someone's house and let another guest at that house say it's okay to take something. And I said, I'm going to let you make that decision because I know, like, but this is why I don't feel good about it. And my right. my son was like, okay, let's just take a photo of it, like of the there, like <laughs> yeah, of the of the rocks and the coral that he found. And I'm like, yeah, and then we get to look at it forever, no matter where we are, like right. And I was like so proud of that decision. I was like, yeah. that's a real, really strong choice because like I didn't have yeah. an answer, but you know, you just do the best that you can at the time. I guess is the point of that story. When you give anybody who's like able to listen and able to like take you at face value and and not assume that you have some sort of like I don't know what your ulterior motive would be or but you know kids kids are just able to do that sometimes adults are too but I think we all have to kind of like fight a lot of internalized misgivings yeah that we're we're all sort of like raised with to varying extents and when you're able to sort of give somebody the choice in a situation like that where like you're doing this mental calculus and at some point, like the ultimate thing that is that it sounds like was driving you was like, you don't want your kid to be hurt. And rules as written say that this is, you know, maybe allowed. But when you when you're able to give a child kind of all the information about like, you're not saying no, just to say no, mm-hmm. but you're saying no, because you have these reasons that you, you, you know, you don't feel good about it. A lot of kids are are really good about that stuff and will agree with you. Yeah. And people just don't give them enough credit. Uh, it's like that's yeah. this conversation, despite it having bleak beginnings with like the whole that aquarium <laughs> in Japan you went to, it's like made me my oh. heart fill. And, and I guess this goes back as well to like how you have the Monterey Bay Aquarium doing outreach and explaining these things to kids. Mm. And as mm. we just sort of said anecdotally, kids are fucking cool. So... Like, yeah. Yeah. So I I think to sort of wrap up my initial take on it, I do think aquariums can be ethical. Like, I don't think corporate aquariums necessarily can be. I think that there's definitely a way, like, for aquatic sanctuaries to exist and do mm. really good work. But I, and I think there are obviously, that's like maybe a sliding scale of other aquariums. I've been fortunate enough to only sort of go to very good aquariums underwater world in queensland is really good that sounds made up i know i know (laughs) it really does i think it's called sea life now oh there's a sea life park in hawaii that is not good oh no (laughs) that i will not go to that i can maybe work into yeah oh no i'm gonna look into that because i really i i hope it's just like an overarching like brand and they're like franchises or something oh they're probably not related honestly they might be but it's sea life park sounds like such a generic (laughs) yes (laughs) aquarium land that like i I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't related at all true true that's a good point and then yeah as for home aquariums yeah i think as you said i think on the individual like you know looking at it on the micro level like I think there's obviously a good way of keeping an aquarium but I think yeah being mindful towards where those fish are sourced and what environmental impacts that's having as well as like consider water usage as well I guess is another thing Mm. 
yeah, I'm really, I, again, like you were saying before, I've like had several questions, especially going up to like, oh yeah, you know, of being on a few yeah. trips and I'm like, I really want to like see if this is okay or not. Yeah, I'm, I'm relieved and I'm looking forward to researching this. So we'll see. I can try to phrase this as a hot take. Yes. I think it'll also make it easier for me to research yes. if I do like more of a black and white thing. So I guess for like for big aquariums, I guess trying to make this into a, like an artificially rigid structure mm-hmm. would be, I think it's possible for uh, big like commercial aquariums to either be basically good like Monterey Bay mm-hmm. or to be like pretty much evil. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that I believe there is a way to have like a gray area True. there. Yeah. So that's my like, I th- and that's what I'll, I guess I'll look into is like, how do we, how do we judge these two things? And like, is it possible to have some sort of like middle ground here somehow? I don't know. I don't know how that would work out. Mm-hmm. And then for private aquariums, I guess I would say that I just, I don't know that it's possible to have like an easy way to set up a well-sourced and well-cared-for aquarium. And that's mm-hmm. what I guess I would be interested in if you find anything about... Yeah. Right? If there if there is a way for, like, you know, your every man, your every person to have a home aquarium that has fish that are easily found, that are, you know, not from anything super sketchy, that is affordable to fill with enrichment stuff for the fish. Mm-hmm. Because obviously if you have money and you have a lot of interest in it, you can set up like a really nice saltwater tank. Yeah. But I'm not interested in that because I know that's possible. So yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm talking about like, yeah, could I, you know, for under $200, $300 US, like set up an appropriate environment for a home aquarium? Yeah. Yeah. So it's okay if you would like to cover both, but I was thinking if you want to cover the larger aquariums and I can look mm-hmm. at home aquariums. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think as you sort of talk through it, at least with home aquariums, I think my answer is no. Like if I was going to give a hard I think mine line, is no, but I'm hoping I'm yes. wrong. Yeah. And of course, like it, here I am hedging all my comments so much for a hot take, but like. got to be bold. you got to be angry. Right. got to be mostly wrong. Right. I, I know many people who have aquariums at their home and I understand like just because I'm yeah, saying this no. This is absolutely not me trying to like, yeah. yeah, this isn't me trying to go out and attack anybody with a home aquarium. Yeah. Yeah. This is me just like pure, pure curiosity because like, like you've, you've brought it up a bunch of times. Ethical. That's a, that's, that's a word. Like mm-hmm. there's no ethical way for me to buy clothing right now. No. So I'm not trying to like. We both we both live <laughs> in colonies, like. <laughs> yeah, I'm not wealthy enough. Like you have to be wealthy to buy things that are remotely ethically sourced. Mm-hmm. So like, <laughs> blanket I'm, no. You know, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Yeah, like it would be good to know if there are like chains that are known for being actually very careful with it, or if there are just sources of not just. You know, aquarium life, but also aquarium rocks and aquarium plants, Shit, things that like... I didn't even think of that. Can like aquarium plants is also another big problem with oh. people stealing like marine algae, like seaweed and stuff from no. areas where it's it's more sensitive. So like there's a lot you could look into, I guess. Yeah. Like, is there a way to put together an aquarium that is is appropriate for the animals and also <laughs> at least moderately appropriately sourced in terms of, yeah, the sea life? Oh, gosh, I can't wait to learn far too much about all of this <laughs> i'm just gonna watch blackfish three times in a row day. <laughs> nice well thank you so much for doing this episode with me i'm so excited to like read more about this stuff and yeah thank you for your patience in like trying to find a time as well no it wasn't just you i was also like 
just, just some, sometimes your brain's just not up for it. No, no. And it's like we know very well that we're probably going to find some depressing shit, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I will <laughs> chat to you soon. Yeah, I'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye. Bye. So, Sarah, it's been a few weeks. What have you found about large-scale aquariums and whether or not they're ethical or to what degree they're ethical, etc.? Overall, broadly, you can kind of see that by and large, big public aquariums, and by public I mean like anybody can come into them and visit, not necessarily publicly owned, right? Mm -hmm. Are most of the time there's not really gray area it's like it's like an aquarium is pretty much universally like profit driven and just bad just bad for the animals most of the time it's bad for the animals it's also turns out ooh, not great for the staff or the people who work there oh um, yeah on the other hand usually if an aquarium is kind of pretty good about animal care largely consistently good about animal care. There's like a couple exceptions that we can talk about where there's some gray area, but mostly it is like fairly black and white. You either have, you know, which makes sense. You either have a company that's driven like by profit, by wanting to make money for shareholders or whatever, or you have like an aquarium that is actually primarily focused on animal welfare, animal research, outreach for endangered species awareness or conservation awareness. So like, I think that was kind of interesting for me as I expected there to be a lot more in between stuff, a lot more, you know, as there are, there's definitely some of that for sure. Like none of these organizations are without sin or whatever. None of them are like completely free of some amount of exploitation of the animals, but a lot of the severity of that is going to kind of depend on the individual organization, but it might also depend on your own understanding of what is good or bad animal treatment. That is what I've largely found too. Obviously, I'll get into that more later, but I'm like, honestly, it really is just a matter of how you prioritize certain issues. Like, obviously, I care about the well-being of animals, but I I would put, you know, workers' rights, not entirely more important, but like, I care about that just as much as I care about the well-being of the animals. Well, and like, if you think about that too, if if you're not treating your workers well there's a really good chance they're not going to treat the animals well that's kind of like an out out branching of that where if you're underpaying your staff your underpaid staff eventually you're not going to be giving the animals as much care as they would if they were being paid adequately totally totally yeah it's yeah it's sort of like you can't really disentangle those two which i guess is kind of why maybe there is this black and white yeah it's like well if you're gonna be shit then you're shit throughout because yeah that makes sense there's a lot we could talk about. I think the big one that comes to mind when people think of like, if you are thinking about aquariums being bad for animals at all, it's very likely because you or somebody you know has watched the documentary Blackfish. Have you seen that? No, I I should have. I sh- I will I will endeavor to watch this. <laughs> Definitely watch it. So in 2010, SeaWorld Orlando orca trainer named Don Branchow was actually killed by one of the orcas during a show during a like a show that people were people there yeah during like a dinner show this one orca tilicum has actually been involved with or had i think i think they've died at this point had actually been involved with a series of violent attacks including other like weird deaths of people there was one guy who broke into SeaWorld orlando after hours they found like alcohol or drugs in his system so he clearly wasn't 
Yeah, he wasn't sober-minded. He broke in. He broke into the... like. It, it seems like he almost accidentally ended up in the holding pen for the orcas. And oh he was God. found the next morning, like, pretty badly banged up like it like he was dead he was dead but it was also clear from the autopsy that he had been it's hard to ascribe intentionality to another creature but it does mm-hmm. seem like Tillicum had at least viewed this human as like a toy for him to play with and had like gone out of his way to like roughly play with his toy well the things like just what i know from the behavior of orcas is that they're not uh, they're not anti you know a little bit of torture before killing right and that's something that like i will kind of joke about not liking orcas and it's not that i actually don't like orcas it's more that in the pacific northwest where i grew up orcas get a lot of attention they're kind of like a mascot Mm. for british columbia and north washington when other sea life doesn't really get that attention and so i had this stupid hipster like charismatic megafauna Ugh, i like the weird awkward megafauna but orcas don't attack humans in the wild there have been okay, right. very, very few, if any, recorded instances of an orca attacking a human. Even when humans mm-hmm. have like invaded their space or like threatened them, orcas just don't do that. Okay. As much as they will like fuck up a seal or fuck up a shark for no reason or like hunt gray whale babies, they don't seem to really want to do that to humans, with the exception being captive orcas. Right. Who have been known to do that quite often. And Right, it does sort of seem like you know the captivity is the common denominator here. So keeping these animals in captivity is clearly doing something to their behavior patterns, but it's also doing a lot of negative stuff to their health. So Blackfish talks about all of that in a lot of detail. And one thing that kind of watching Blackfish years ago opened my eyes to was there is an emphasis in the last half of the documentary about how SeaWorld will spin how they report on their animals' health. Oh, okay. And this was something that came up as I was looking through other aquariums who have practices that I would find very alarming that I don't think are healthy for the animals. Information that I do think indicates that these aquariums are treating their animals really poorly or at least just negligently. When asked about the like specific questions about orca health, so in SeaWorld and most captive orcas, you will find a very high rate of dorsal fin collapse. Oh, like the atrophy of the fin? Right. So they'll just like fold over on top of the orcas. You probably wouldn't realize it looking at pictures or drawings of orcas, but their dorsal fin is actually like a meter and a half high in a lot of cases, or maybe a meter high. It's, no, yeah, it's like a meter and a half. It's like over your head for most people. Far out. They're really tall. And so when they collapse, it's really obvious. It looks really weird. Orca biologists, orca researchers will point to the fact that if you survey, you know, if you go out and like visually survey orca populations around the world, you'll find a rate of dorsal fin collapse of less than 10%. Some measures is less than 5%. So like one in 20 male orcas, female orcas, it's even lower. And a lot of the time that dorsal fin collapse is not, it's not complete collapse. So it's just like kind of a little wobbly. Mm-hmm. It will heal over time. So there was one instance of a stranded orca found on a beach that had some amount of dorsal fin collapse, but they were able to rescue the orca and return it to the sea. And within a week, as they were tracking it to make sure it was still healthy, it healed. The dorsal fin like came upright again. And in SeaWorld, that does not happen. So is it like a muscle not being worked out or something like because it's not in the sea? Because it's such a an uncommon phenomenon in the wild and because SeaWorld mm-hmm. is so... 
So SeaWorld will tell you that this is like a normal thing. No. SeaWorld 100% will say, oh, look, we've like, we have our own resident biologist. And he says, this is totally fine. We've investigated ourselves and found we did nothing wrong. Well, this is totally fine for captivity orcas. Oh, they've like, they have adjusted, they've adjusted some of their wording. Before they used to just deny that it was like excessive in captive orcas. They would say like, oh, it's pretty, it's probably pretty much the same in wild orcas. And as of 2015, so a few years after the documentary came out, more research came out that was like, no, this is absolutely not normal. And so SeaWorld has adjusted their wording on this particular thing to say that, yes, this happens in captive orcas, but it's not an indicator of like negative health impacts. It's just because Hmm. when orcas are in the wild, they swim straight lines for long distances. And like the pressure of the water going past their dorsal fin Mm -hmm. is kind of what like trains either the muscles or the collagen in it to like stay upright, which still sounds not good to me. To me, it's, yeah, it's like, well, we don't know what else is wrong. It's like, babe, I don't think atrophy is good. Right, Like, I just, that, that's, as you say, that's alarm bells for me, even if you can't immediately see any other, like, health impact. I guess this is one of my, like, one of my, my hard lines. There's a few. If a large aquarium or a large oceanarium, if if it's called an oceanarium, that seems to mostly imply that there's also, like, amusement park stuff. Oh, okay. These are really common around Southeast Asia in particular. There's way more big, like, large-scale aquariums, but that also kind of ties in with a lot of governments in Southeast Asia being much more okay with questionable treatment of marine animals generally, unfortunately. If they keep large marine mammals in tanks, that's like a no-go. If you find a place that keeps, like, dolphins in tanks or porpoises Mm. in tanks, like, no. They're, like, that's not ever healthy, essentially. The only exceptions are, like, at the Honolulu Aquarium, which is a pretty pretty small aquarium. They do have a monk seal that they keep in captivity. His name is Ho'ailona, and Ho'ailona was a rescue after he was hit by a ship strike. And he's blind in both eyes. So Ho'ailona can't be returned to the wild. I think they tried at one point, and his eyesight wasn't very good and he was also too even before the ship strike he was very friendly towards humans right so he just kept getting back around boats so there are exceptions but the exceptions really are like health impacts right yeah like it's a genuine like sanctuary for this animal rather than exactly with the captive orcas at sea world captive marine mammals spend way more time generally this is like across the board way more time at the surface than their wild counterparts and they are mammals mm. right they have skin similar to your eye and that means that they're also susceptible to skin cancer no and sunburn which no right you wouldn't think about but they absolutely are and so you find images of marine mammals in a lot of sea world parks oh. that across the world who have like pink and red and nasty like irritated spots and a lot of times it's sunburn oh my gosh i don't had you known about this before looking into aquari- like the aquariums? Some of this had come up in Blackfish. And then after I watched Blackfish in like 2013 or 2014, I did spend like a week just reading about everything having to do with like captive orcas and just like how how gross it is and how much like SeaWorld and similar SeaWorld looks. So there's SeaWorld and there's SeaWorld parks where SeaWorld actually operates like 19 parks total uh-huh. that aren't all under the like the name SeaWorld. So. Right. Oh, so they're sneakily SeaWorld. 
Exactly. Oh, that's uh, cheeky. Like suddenly SeaWorld. Yeah, I was like reading into a bunch of that. One of the other things that comes up in this, I will be able to tie into like another aquarium, so I'm not just ragging on SeaWorld, <laughs> is that they will talk about the lifespan of orcas. And mm. if you ask anybody walking around a SeaWorld park who works there, or if you look at SeaWorld's website, they will tell you that captive orcas and wild orcas have very similar life expectancies. That doesn't sound true. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not. It's, you know, like the the data doesn't hold up. Wild marine animals, in particular, are very very hard to like figure out a lifespan for, mm-hmm. because they just when they die, they like we don't know where they go. Yeah. Right. We don't know what what they die of. We can't like because you can't keep them in captivity. You can't observe like a normal life cycle. Yeah. But one thing with trying to age animals in the wild is that you can actually use carbon dating. Right. Which is fun. You can take tissue, bone, teeth samples, and you can still use carbon dating for an animal. You can actually, there's a type of, it's not quite carbon dating. I don't remember what it is. It's just a different type of element with a radioactive isotope. Mm -hmm. In eyeballs, that can be used to really, really accurately. Because like the goo, the jelly in your eyeballs formed when you were like a fetus essentially so like the jelly in your eyeballs at any point in your life can be extracted and used to like very very accurately date when you like when your eyeballs formed no way that is so yeah (laughs) i know that was one that's a that's a college fact for you everybody go to school they have found instances of wild orcas that have either washed up because they were stranded or that they've managed to get samples off of while they were alive that lived like easily into their 60s 70s 80s they have oh one example gosh. in particular where a wild orca was found to be 103 years old excuse me yep so very similar to human lifespans actually according to sea world orcas generally live to be about 60 so that's like immediately not true right mm-hmm. they're saying that the average life expectancy is like 55 years 58 mm. years including the life expectancy that they are reporting for the orcas in their parks but that's not true if you look at the data and like the numbers for when an orca was born in captivity and then died in captivity you're lucky if you get 30 years out of a captive orca they much more often live much shorter lives like 20 to 25 it's not uncommon for them to die when they're in their teens oh that's horrible it's awful right so that's that's sea world which like anybody looking at sea world parks can kind of pretty quickly go like oh well this is clearly an amusement park not Mm -hmm. an aquarium so what about actual aquariums i ask myself well there is an aquarium like one of the most famous aquariums in the pacific is Churaumi aquarium in okinawa okay is this the one you went to it is the one i went to and i looked it up because i was like maybe my memories are like wrong maybe i'm incorrect about like how sad i'm remembering this this <laughs> aquarium being but i don't think i am so oh, no <laughs> <laughs> i'm definitely not i found pictures i actually found like not very many like eight or nine photos that i had taken when i was there in 2015 and so i have photos of like the big tank the big open water tank with oh. the whale sharks and i can post those someplace yeah if you could send them that would be great yeah i'll have a look at them now that'd be lovely i guess so this is like where i started with like thinking about this aquarium was just like oh do i have any images from when i was there and i do and so Uh, by the way listeners sarah's uh, google (laughs) document is titled aquarium thoughts that's right yeah which 
That's, that's you and now I understand. Thoughts. Yeah, now it's thoughts, but that was not what I first thought of. <laughs> so is that that's a ray there? So this is a huge ray. This ray is massive. These are bluefin tuna. Wow. Which are also like huge fish. This ray, this is like a proper manta ray, and I want to say it was probably five. No, am I getting my meters conversion right? Three meters across. Holy five dooly. meters across. Fifteen feet or so. It was massive. Whale sharks usually about ten meters long, but can be much longer. They're huge. Eight to ten meters. And so you can see a whale shark over here. The yeah. big thing in this image that I realized looking at it now is that you can see the other side of the tank. Oh, no. So it, I am on one side of the tank looking directly be. across a circular tank, and you can see the other side of it. So it's just, it's big. It's a big aquarium tank, but it is not big enough to house all of these animals. All, all of these animals that would not be seeing each other in the wild very often right because of a just lot of the sheer them... size of it right well and like right because you have tuna which are an open ocean fish and then yeah. you have like rays which can be open ocean or reef but the yeah. only place most of these animals would like regularly bump into each other would be during like particular feeding events or mm -hmm. like around reef structures and probably at certain times a year i'd imagine right like... right <laughs> very occasionally not holy day that's day sad dude Right. I don't like that photo of... So this photo has a whale shark. Is that the bottom of the tank? Yeah, this is the bottom of the tank. And there's a scuba diver. The and... scuba diver had a camera. And so the only thing that scuba diver was doing was sitting with a camera. And outside the tank, there were screens where you could see a live stream of what they were recording. The entire time, there is a dolphin. I don't know if I have him in any of the pictures. There is a dolphin that was... Oh, actually, it's like this bottom corner. That was coming up and would go and try to like basically hump this scuba diver and so the scuba diver was constantly fending off this this dolphin that is essentially trying to like be aggressive be like playfully mm -hmm. aggressive because it's just bored the yeah. other thing with the dolphin is that all of the whale sharks you can't really see it too well mm -hmm. these were little mesh cages on the tips of their tail fin what the that were there there were signs up that those are there to protect their tail fin from that dolphin because the dolphin gets bored and will just bite on them. That's horrible. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't mean to talk about humans in the same way as animals, but I'm just so much of what you're saying already in terms of like, you know, orcas, you know, seemingly being really aggressive towards humans right. in captivity and just even the way that animals treat each other in captivity i just i think of our prisons because that's what i do right but i'm just thinking of how you know we restrict movement and basically torture people by putting them right. in prison and then we blame them for why they may develop behavioral issues or be aggressive right. towards staff and it's just like yeah well what did you fucking think was going to happen like right that's the all only I'm humans seeing. that they interact with like it's always the nature of their interactions is always transactional, mm -hmm. right? It's always like, I perform this action, I get food for today. Yeah. Or it's punitive. It's yeah. it's punishing you know, both the humans in prisons, but also the animals in these cages are getting like, the dolphin gets an elbow in its face when it like Ugh. is bored and comes up to bother you. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh no. Oh my God. Sorry. Yeah. That, 
I definitely will post these photos. That makes me want to cry. Okay, I'll send them to you. It's so sad. This is also, these last two photos are from outside too. They are not in the main aquarium. You would not know that they existed if you didn't, you know, if you weren't the kind of person like I am who just wants to like poke into every corner of an aquarium that I go to. Oh my gosh. And then I'm actually this nearly is crying a sea turtle. <laughs> yeah, no, it's awful. And this, so like, if you go on to... The website for this aquarium, they'll talk about how they're focused on animal well-being and no. animal, like, research. The no, whale sharks are there. Right, exactly. Like, you, you're reading this stuff and you're, like, you're, <laughs> my memories were one thing. And then seeing the photos, I'm like, oh, I wasn't exaggerating, like, in my head. A lot of these systems, a lot of these organizations will say that they are dedicated to animal welfare and conservation and research. But just because they're using the right buzzwords doesn't mean uh-uh. anything really no, no i i mean yeah like even that so that manatee one is like the most horrible thing i scrolled like, away from it because it is very like yeah it's actually yeah it's it's, it's just a tiny little pool is it is there anything what's the substrate on the bottom or is it just the bottom of like this is just the bottom of a pool fucking hell that's messed up man it's so there's no like <laughs> to describe it it's just like a white like smaller than an Olympic sized swimming pool, mm-hmm. a it's white just the pool. Of the pool. So if you so talking about Ho'ilina at the Honolulu Aquarium earlier, the monk seal, he gets different toys. He gets mm-hmm. different like things to interact with. They cycle them out regularly. He has like both the public facing side of his tank, and he has like constant all day access to a private part of his tank. Yeah. So, like, that is an animal that is a marine mammal being kept in captivity because of health reasons, but they're still making sure that there's something in there. There's a recognition that, like, this animal has, like, some sort of, like, internal life yes. that that he wants to be living. And so there are concessions made to make sure that he gets to have something of a, a full life. These manatees are here for people to gawk at, and they're in a big empty pool. It goes to show the profit driven aspect of it but it doesn't even make sense in terms of like you know i've seen dugongs which i think are Mm. fairly close to manatees pretty similar some aquariums here and yeah like very similar setup to what you were describing with that seal okay not the same animal i did have to check it it is it is not the same animal yeah not the same animal they're definitely different animals yeah are they related yes yeah they're both sirenians sirenians yeah and they eat seagrass both of them i think so they're named after mermaids i know that Hmm. but yeah the the dugongs i love them but yeah like they're so fun and playful and it's like it doesn't even make sense to me if you want your visitors to have a good time surely you'd want to be seeing the animals have a good time but it's not about that it's it's about gawking i guess i think part of it too is that so the animals inside the main aquarium are like in habitats that so the the big open water pen with Mm -hmm. the the manta rays and the whale sharks and the dolphin there's nothing in there for them Mm -hmm. they're open water creatures i don't know that there's much that they would want a dolphin would definitely want something to play with yeah but the emphasis isn't on it didn't feel like it was on i had no evidence that it was on like the animals needs but the emphasis was absolutely on like the presentation so instead of having exhibits that are more naturalistic so this is you know this is another really good point for like is an aquarium like a good place to visit is this particular aquarium like going to be a positive experience for me while it's taking care of its animals is do they have 
naturalistic habitats. Have they looked at the wild habitat of a creature and tried as best as they can to replicate it in their enclosure? Mm-hmm. And that is something where if you go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, they have their like one of their most famous tanks is their kelp forest tank. It is a kelp forest. They have bull kelp in there. They have along the bottom. I believe they've basically cultivated sand and sediment from the Monterey Bay. And so they've made sure that they are replicating everything as best as they can for these creatures. There's other creatures in that aquarium where, you know, they aren't kelp forest creatures. Instead, they tend to like to live under piers, like starfish, barnacles, some fish. And so they've taken old wood and old logs and they've like treated them to make sure that they aren't full of harmful bacteria basically like kind of conditioned the logs like chemically conditioned to match the 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 sea around monterey and they've built like fake pylons for a fake pier for fish to live around i want to see right and it's it's so lovely to see for like a human to visit but then it's also like oh right this makes sense this is where you would find these creatures would be around old sunken logs someplace yeah yeah the okinawan aquarium most of the exhibits all of the exhibits i have photos of i'm not going to try to speak for the ones i don't have photos of or like Mm -hmm. trust memories that are you know five six six seven years old the tanks that i remember were empty other than the fish the only time i can think of tanks that really had anything in them it was always tanks for like right you can't have seahorses unless you have something for them to hold on to there's certain types of sea pen and sea snakes and sea worms where like they need to have sand because that's where they live yeah that's what they and chill so out. in those specific tanks they would have enough of that substrate for them to exist in yeah but it was like the bare minimum oh right yeah they're okay. You wouldn't have complex environments where you'd have like three or four different creatures that would normally live together that kind of need to live together because yeah. they provide specific nutrients for the environment. It's a you wouldn't ecosystem. really have that so much. Like that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely. Right. So look out for captive marine mammals mm-hmm. or just captive like large marine species generally. Like I haven't. I'm going to talk about the Georgia Aquarium as, like, my my main example of, like, gray areas. But by and large, if they have really large, like, big sea life, there's a good chance they're not treating it with the kind of respect that it would need. Because usually if sea life is more than, you know, a meter or so long, it also tends to take up a lot of ocean space in its life that it it can't get to in an aquarium. Obviously, a lot of different animals have their own sort of life cycles but you know right varying needs across their lifespan like mammals i imagine right. yeah no it's true because a lot of fish will start out in kind of a larval state mm-hmm. and it is far more common in fish than in any other like type of animal fish cnidarians just generally like marine life to start their life in like one very specific environment and then mature in a totally different area yeah yeah right so we're thinking of like pacific salmon are a really easy one because they famously will like adult salmon will come from the ocean go up freshwater rivers to spawn Mm -hmm. they'll lay eggs and spawn in freshwater environments and then those fish in their larval state will make their way back down the river to the ocean after they hatch Mm -hmm. and then they'll live their entire adult life as ocean fish until it is time for them to return to freshwater so like right how do you have a fish like that in captivity a lot of fish are 
born in brackish water so like at the mouth mm. of a river where right the salinity is very different than like what they're gonna want as an adult fish are complicated and brackish water is not going to be very appealing like if you're going off a profit motive like brackish just means that it's not quite fresh water and not quite ocean oh right water. okay so just where they meet like the two meet sort of thing yeah and so like okay. there are reasons like there's chemical reasons why brackish water tends to be a little bit cloudier and gross looking but it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be it doesn't okay there you go mm. something i learned so those are the big like red flags i'm gonna end with two examples i think of like i don't really necessarily know how to feel right. about these things there is some like data-driven information about aquariums that is like kind of positive and something to think about the thing itself is definitely bad whether (laughs) or not that condemns the entire aquarium is more of a like i don't know the georgia aquarium is the only aquarium or like one of two aquariums maybe yeah outside of asia the first and only aquarium to keep whale sharks is the aquarium in georgia Mm. by every other metric this aquarium seems to be pretty good they do a lot of like actual conservation. They do a lot of actual research. A big thing with a lot of aquariums generally is if they tend to focus on local w- marine life more than like marine life from everywhere, that's a pretty good sign. Yeah. And yeah. Georgia Aquarium mostly does this, but then they have these whale sharks. Yeah. They originally got four whale sharks in 2005. Their justification was these whale sharks were basically like caught and intended to be sold at a fish market for food and oil how long were they being held i don't know i I couldn't find information about that i know it took three to four days for them to get from taiwan where this fish market was to georgia and my first thought when i was like all of their whale sharks came from fish markets in taiwan this is before taiwan outlawed whale shark fishing okay not legal there anymore okay but my thought was just like if you you could have bought them and then released them. That, that was exactly what I was <laughs> getting at. I'm like, well, I don't think they're captivity bred, so why are you keeping them in captivity? That doesn't make sense right. to me. You didn't really rescue them so much as prolonged a painful existence. Yeah. That's 2005. They end up with five. The five are two female and two male whale sharks. By 2007, two years later, both of the male whale sharks had died. Oh my god. How? They're not exactly, like, very transparent on how they died. I, those that is two, not good. <laughs> well, no. I think one of them, they said they just got ill and they stopped eating. They both stopped eating, and mm-hmm. one was, like, related to an injury. The other was just, like, maybe he got sick. We don't really know. Oh, my God. They passed away because of lack of nutrition. Oh, my they God. They immediately replaced them. So then they had Wait, four what? whale sharks, again, from the same fish market. Oh, oh, What? I'm sorry, is this fucking fish market just, like, pumping out whale sharks all the time? I did not know this. I did not know this until looking this up. I knew shark fin soup was a really big issue, and, like, shark hunting and shark fishing is, like, a huge problem, especially for bigger shark species. Mm -hmm. I did not realize that whale sharks were part of that. No, I didn't either. But apparently they are, so not good. But I don't like how they're just going ahead and replacing them. That does not seem... Like, there's a long-term goal here. Right? Yeah. To their credit, they haven't purchased new whale sharks since then. Okay. okay. But that's that's about as much as I can give them there. Because, so those two sharks died within two years. The first, first two males. The female sharks both died in... Oh my god. 
one died in 2020, one died in 2021. So that's only 15, 16 years in captivity and they died and we don't know how old they were before that. There are ways researchers could have told you that. You can actually look at a whale shark mm. bones and shark bones are like tree rings and that they just grow a new layer on the outside. And no one's done that or oh, released the information on that. At least we haven't seen it. So we don't know how old these sharks were. That's fucked up. Much like... SeaWorld, both the Okinawan Aquarium and the Georgia Aquarium have both claimed that, like, our sharks live a very normal lifespan. Mm-hmm. Trying to say that 20 to, you know, 15 to 20 years is like, well, that's about as long as a shark's going to live. I think so. No, they've actually found whale sharks that are up to 130 years old. Yeah, that make, like, animals that big, from my understanding, don't normally live such short lives i don't know there's like there's instances where like a giant squid will only live like five or seven years but other than that like no (laughs) anything with like a complex system like that no if it's big it usually does just like it's kind of paradoxical but Mm -hmm. they tend to live quite long they tend to be like less disease prone than smaller animals as well Mm -hmm. georgia aquarium it's accredited through the association of zoos and aquarium the aza which do have a very intense like accreditation process Uh, if you're curious about a zoo or aquarium near you checking the aza's website really good first step but georgia's aquarium still has those two other whale sharks they don't have plans to acquire more okay but i don't feel good about this anyways so if you were in georgia just were there and you had a free day and you could go there what would your decision be would you go and visit Georgia Aquarium. It would be really hard. I think so with the AZA accreditation I looked into that one a lot they do a very thorough there's like a a, something like a 34 or 50 page pamphlet that you have to fill out like a questionnaire about not just not just your treatment of animals but there's like sections on animal habitats like are your animal habits like we talked about like are they pretty realistic are you trying are they clean? Do they have veterinary care that's available? Are they being fed proper diets? The AZA also asks questions about employee welfare. Okay. Are you treating your employees well? Are they paid fairly? Do they have health care benefits? They have questions about your customer treatment. Like, do you have appropriate bathroom facilities? Do you have enough food and water available? Are you pricing things fairly? So, mm. like, it's very thorough. Uh, Be- because... They have that accreditation, and you have to redo the accreditation every five years, so it's not like they can do it and then fuck off and then whatever. That's good. I would probably go, but I would definitely go with an eye for basically, like, what do I tell other people? Like, Mm. I wouldn't go with the, like, I'm just going to go look at animals because I really like animals. I would also go with, like, a constant, like, okay, I am going to look at, like, the other aquariums. I'm going to look at what they give me for information about whale sharks. And are they like really prominently displaying information that I know to be false? Are they saying that like 13 right. years is a very healthy lifespan for a whale shark? Yeah, yeah. That would be kind of like my takeaway from that particular one. But I would definitely also look at like recent news from the aquarium. Like, has anything been reported locally in recent times about them, mm-hmm. you know, having other kind of sketchy practices or doing anything else that seems a little bit suspect? Right, because I could imagine in that time, maybe management, like, I'm not talking about Georgia specifically, but just with this whole, like, accreditation mm-hmm. process. Yeah, I guess yeah. In, if it's before the five-year renewal, there might be new management. And so 
right. you know, maybe there's signs that it wouldn't be up to snuff. Well, that's how the original whale sharks were purchased. It was because the aquarium fell under new management. And oh. the new management immediately was like, oh, we need an attraction. We need oh, something no. to pull people in. That's yeah. awful. That's that aquarium. I, there's other aquariums out there that you can find where they're mostly good. And then there's that one thing. Yes. And definitely treat it as a case by case. I just, I guess mostly like I want people to think about like, why am I going to the aquarium and what am yeah. I trying to get out of this? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess there's something to be said for like, you know, if you do go to a place like this and there's like one or two things that are a bit sketch, you could always give feedback and like try and like, I mean, I don't know how effective it would be, but just be like, everything was great, but this was awful and please stop. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I don't know how effective that would be, but. So after your blackfish came out, uh, SeaWorld used to breed orcas in captivity. (gasps) All of their current orca popular. So before that, blackfish, like, really go out. If you're interested at all, definitely watch that documentary. Okay. They used to kidnap, is what I'm going to call it, orcas off the coast of British Columbia, primarily. Aww. Content warning, because, like, if you're... There's some really, like, hard stuff to look at in that documentary. Okay. In particular, in the the orca hunts, and then some of the images from when Don Branchow passed away. They used to, like just remove orca calves from their parents no, in the no, wild no, no. then they switched to breeding captivity and they claimed it was for like ethical reasons but it seems like it was more financially mm. just like it made more sense financially for them to breed captive orcas after a blackfish came out and there was this like massive public backlash they actually saw like they saw their numbers tank dramatically hmm. which is not something like having a public interest campaign to actually do anything it's it's like a foreign concept to me but it did so i think if you do have an aquarium that's local to you or a zoo or anything that has animals on display and you think that they're doing really good stuff mostly and you see something where you know they have an animal show like i would never support an aquarium having like an animal show where they ask animals to perform tricks Mm -hmm. it's not what animals should be doing it feels icky well and like one thing that i i think i would point out primarily with that is like if you go if the point of aquariums is they are trying to tell you and zoos is to show you animals in like a natural environment and this is why you should love the natural world then Mm -hmm. why would you have animals doing unnatural things that's interesting because i'm just thinking now i went to a really good animal sanctuary in north queensland and the only show they had like the animal show they had was like a a crocodile feeding thing and i don't love it i still Mm -hmm. don't love it and there were reasons for why they were there like and they explained those reasons that like Mm. you know crocodiles are very territorial and this one was found in the right shopping center car park which isn't (laughs) crocodile's fault but the likelihood of getting that crocodile like they tried removing it but it was just like fuck that i'm going back to my home because that's right yeah yeah. it's gonna do but what they were getting the the equi like tricks were just demonstrating Mm. in the wild crocodiles do this jaw popping thing when they yeah catch prey and they were just demonstrating that by feeding it and i felt like that sort of like demonstration of something it would do in the wild doesn't feel as gross to me as like seeing a seal perform an act which i have definitely seen before so hoi lana and the honolulu aquarium i volunteered there for like a week before covid shut everything down that one i saw him quite a bit they would do mealtime shows 
mm-hmm. but it wasn't so much a show as it was like we are feeding the monk seal yes and we will talk to you about what we're doing and i think they did ask Ilona to and so this is something that i read happens at several aquariums that have like marine mammals that they're rehabilitating or that can't be released is that instead of they don't they don't say that they're doing tricks mm-hmm. instead it's like there are kind of physical therapy things that this particular animal needs to do so we're going to ask this animal to swim a lap before we huh. feed it and that's right it's part of their treatment and with Ho'ilona it was this is also another one that's really common in zoos as well we sometimes need to check on Ho'ilona's teeth so like we will ask Ho'ilona to do the thing that we ask him to do when the dentist needs to look at his teeth and then right. reward him for it and then okay. like so it, right so in the same way it's like well this isn't really you know you're not asking him to perform for the sake of performance you're asking him to do a task that you actually will need like is medically relevant okay is, yeah is important you know i've seen it done with birds of prey and scavengers where they will take their food and make it look like a dead animal right if it's like a vulture Mm-hmm. And then they'll hide the food someplace and they'll like call the bird out and ask the bird to like, okay, like find your meal. And like, it feels like a trick for humans to watch, but it's mm-hmm. also like actually just helping the bird feel more like they're out in the wild and they are trying to scavenge for food and they're doing the things that they would naturally do. And like those right, acts are very, very different than asking a seal to like honk a horn. Yes. So that's a big one. Like if I just, that that's a hard one for me. Like, I don't think I would, I would have to know a lot about an aquarium before i went to anywhere that had animal like shows like actual Mm -hmm. shows that they put on the other one is like some people talk about like don't go anywhere with a touch tank touch tanks are unnatural and i think that Mm -hmm. kind of gets more into the like what is the purpose of an aquarium if we have aquariums to teach people about the natural world and try to encourage a healthy curiosity Mm -hmm. and empathy and ideas of conservation I think touch tanks, so the AZA recommendations or the AZA accreditation mm-hmm. allows for touch tanks, but has very specific rules. And when I say touch tanks, I mean like, you know, you can reach into a little like shallow tank and yeah. you can touch a sea star or you can touch a crab sometimes. The rules are like, there has to be an attendant at all times with the animals. Like they can't just have an open tank where anybody can come up at any point. You need to be able to, like there needs to be positive control on Mm -hmm. every member of the public coming up to the touch tank. So, right, you can't have just like 18 kids rush forward when you only have one docent there to like lead them. That's not okay. Uh, Rules about how many hands, like only one hand. That's like a hard rule. Don't let people touch with two hands. Most tanks that I have been to, it's like you get one finger. The other hand has to be like fully out of the tank at all times. So I think there are ways to have touch tanks where you are encouraging not just like a curiosity, but also letting people and kids know that like sea Mm -hmm. life isn't inherently dangerous. And there was a study that I found from Dr. Sean Rowe at Oregon State University, where they were looking at families and zoos and aquariums to kind of assess like how much they were learning and engaging. And what they found was that while very, very few, very few people go through and actually read all of the signage at aquariums and zoos, what they found was looking at the families as they approached a touch tank was that these kids and these adults were actively engaging in the scientific process they were asking questions they were forming hypotheses they were investigating 
you know, the data available and then they were checking themselves. So their examples were like a kid goes up and says, oh, this starfish is really mm-hmm. soft and squishy, but that other star- starfish is not soft and squishy. Do you think that the hard starfish is older? And the adult will be like, yeah, I guess that would make sense. Like they probably are a little bit older and then the younger ones will like get harder as they get as they grow up. So you have like a question, like why is one squishy and one isn't? You have a hypothesis like, oh, it, mm-hmm. when they get older, they they get like less squishy. They would sit and like, you know, wh- one finger gently like stroke back and forth different starfish to like look at like how squishy they were. And then they asked the facilitator who was there at the tank and got confirmation. And so I can't say that touch tanks aren't mm-hmm. doing anything when people aren't reading signage, but they're actively like, performing curiosity at these other tanks. This brings up like something that I want to explore on another episode of Hillpod. My position on conservation has like changed a lot. I think we discussed this maybe in the first half, but yeah, it's sort of like touch tanks. They might be able to also just remind people that they are part of the environment too. And like on our trip to Port Douglas, we went on this incredible mangroves and mudflats walking tour with first nations people and we went and caught some seafood and but like the first thing was like we went out and they pointed it at the ground we're like look pick that up and it like the sand was covered in starfish and edgar like we were able to turn it over and see their little feet and stuff like that and then Mm -hmm. as we got out deeper into the water we could see how they sort of like the size of them changed and all that sort of thing and the same with crabs and it's just like i mean i know that touch tanks are still like obviously they're not in their natural environment but I, I I do think that removing that barrier between the environment and like other living things and human like I think that is actually helpful rather than signage as you say like right yeah I think you really need to engage people in that learning whether it's through touch or some other sense I don't think that signs are always enough something that sean Rowe has looked at a lot it's kind of is like his expertise and something that i'm like really interested in just going forward and like thinking about how i want to develop as like a science communicator is people who are designing these exhibits and you know museums zoos aquariums like any kind of like place of public learning will very often set up you know, a model, a tank, an animal exhibit, and then signs and consider it like, well, the signs are the knowledge, the signs are the education. And this study and others, I think, have really shown that the signs are supplemental. Yes. Signage is really good because it can answer questions that people are asking, but signs will not get people to ask questions. I'm going to hate on SeaWorld for the rest of my life. But having like the orca shows where they splash people, having that like that feel, Mm -hmm. That is what forms that connection that I think really like cements curiosity for people. Yeah. And you also have a lot of people who, you know, signs aren't always accessible. Language is, is difficult. Mm-hmm. You have children who are like neurodivergent or have issues with reading and language where a sign with science facts, no matter how it's written, isn't going to connect for them the way, you know, being able to touch the back of a horseshoe crab will or having Monterey Bay and actually the Coney Island Aquarium is, or the New York Aquarium on Coney Island as well. There are these exhibits that kind of show you different food products and like have a physical, like here's the wrapper from a bag of chips. And then we're gonna talk about how that bag of chips is related to 
ocean conservation. Right, yes. So it's something you can like write directly relate to your real life. And I think those sorts of like interactive displays, that's where I guess I would say like I'm a little more okay with a horseshoe crab, a sea star, a sea cucumber having to kind of put up with kids yeah. poking at them once in a while yeah where that like that actually feels like it does serve a, a bigger purpose of like cultural awareness cultural understanding totally. and a lot of these like reef creatures and inter- intertidal creatures are like honestly they're used to like birds pecking at totally. them totally yes a lot of them <laughs> a lot right. of them are very hardy and are, like you know people right like for instance, like that beach where though I, I stood on so many starfish and I start I felt bad initially and then I'm like wait no like they're built because like people have been living on this land and been on this very beach for thousands of years hunting right. they can handle people stepping on them like oh one of the things with like touching a crab when it's alive in a touch tank I'm used to seeing dried like desiccated crab shells from seagulls having like albatross or whatever like having eaten a crab and then dropped the shell. And it's brittle and it breaks apart and it makes it feel like, oh, crabs are really fragile. But that's because it's, you know, that's, that is a non-living object. Yes, exactly. Touching a crab in a tank, you realize like, oh no, this is like a little like armored dude. (laughs) This like, you know, I'm definitely not going to try to step on them because I'm not an asshole, but it does make you really appreciate too, like how strong and resilient a lot of nature is. It just shouldn't have to be resilient. So kind of learning those lessons. Yes. I don't know if are, are zoos and aquariums ethical. It depends, and it takes a lot of cognitive like awareness of your situation and where you're going and to figure that out. So I didn't answer that question for you, but that's, hopefully that's the you have thing, stuff to think about next well, time. Well, no, but this is the this is the frustrating thing about this podcast is like I go in you know, guns blazing, usually prepared to have right, an right. answer. Oh man, this thing is completely bad or completely yeah. good and that's all there is to it. Yeah, and it's like, well, actually, no. And I, through the course of doing this podcast, I've become way more like level-headed and understanding and yeah. it's frustrating because it's so much easier to have an answer. <laughs> yeah, it's so much easier to just be like, whoa, don't go there. I mean, like, for real, SeaWorld sucks. Don't ever go to SeaWorld. Mm-hmm. If you go to SeaWorld, like, you're on my shit list. Yeah. Bottom line. But. Well, like, I guess there's, like, yeah, this sort of, you know, before you go somewhere, have a basic checklist in your head of, mm. like, what your ethical requirements are and sort of follow that. Yeah, so your your ethical requirements would be, yeah, like, no large marine life no like active efforts to bring large marine life into captivity mm-hmm. right. i think i think the active part of it is like really important where it's like you know, there are exceptions to like no marine like no big marine life on display like right. whatever but if they are actively seeking out big big animals to put in a tank no no i i don't want anything to do with them yeah yeah because i guess there's the argument for the georgia case to be like well maybe they're just like looking after like they've decided that this was a bad move and maybe right you can't release those whale sharks back into the ocean at this point like fine so we'll just keep them here until like they have a premature death right which is sad but like they kept restocking these tanks then that that's active to me i guess right yeah no that's interesting to see that the commercial ones are just as sort of tricky so no the georgia ones another one that is like 
would kind of fall into the category of like more conservation minded yeah. generally. Yeah. These whale sharks seem to be like something of an exception, something of mm-hmm. a like management between 2005 and 2007 was particularly gross. But they're also doing the act of like, oh, whale sharks tend to live, you know, 20 years. This is a very normal lifespan mm. for a whale shark. When like, no, absolutely not. No, <laughs> That's not true. No. Yeah. So I guess it's like also how they're spinning things as well and what we actually right. know. Would you like to hear about home aquariums? I would love to. I talked way longer than I intended. Oh no, to that's about. totally fine. I'm so I'm so into this, so that's fine. So my notes are all over the shop. I realized I had two separate oh, documents that have so many words on them. So sorry. <laughs> Mine are the opposite, where there's a lot of links to stuff and then not as many. But then I, you know, it didn't matter. I had plenty, plenty to go off. And with. you're also from listening to your podcast. Like you're also a very visual person as well so you're like yes. yeah so that also totally tracks with what I know of you anyway whereas I've over researched and now I'm overwhelmed mm-hmm. so I'll kind of go through so the question are home aquariums ethical again right. it's gonna depend on your own sort <laughs> of prior priorities so it was actually way harder to sort through the information than I anticipated. Mm. The question of whether or not something is ethical is quite subjective and depends oh, yeah. on your angle of attack. You know, I'm someone who eats meat, including seafood. So it would be quite hypocritical of me to sit here and be like, you know, using marine life for your enjoyment is bad. Like that, that I'm not good. I'm not about to right. do that. I'm right. not about to do a cancel culture on anyone with a fish tank. We live in a society, yes, etc. Yes, etc. But I will raise some ethical concerns that, like, I think people should take on board. And depending on what's important to them personally, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe we should probably just skip on the home aquarium, like unless you mm-hmm. have a lot of time, money, and interest to invest in the hobby, because Aww. like it which sucks because I went away from here we kind of decided at the end of the first portion can the average Joe have a fairly ethical home aquarium I don't think so Mm. I really don't an average Joe who is time poor I don't I don't think so so I'll be kind of switching between home aquariums ornamental fish whatever so Ornamental use of animals has existed since prehistory, but home aquaria has only sort of been a thing for like the past 100, 200 years. Oh my God. I started looking at this stuff when I was trying to find out about public aquarium. And I had like 18 Wikipedia tabs open of just stuff I wanted to look into. And then I had to remind myself that that wasn't my half of this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so interesting. One of my documents is just all about keeping coral in tanks and i'm like josie what this is yes it's so difficult and it's so interesting and i have so much to say about it but that's not the question i'm answering i just got so distracted (laughs) that can be an episode of my podcast i suppose yeah happily i've got i've got all the notes there so so a 2018 estimate of ornamental fish ownership in the u.s was as follows 11.5 million households own 139 million freshwater fish oh my god which is a lot of fish but also maybe not because it you can also get a whole lot of fish in a you know in a tank and 1.6 million households own 
18.8 million saltwater fish. As I'll kind of get into later, I can easily position saltwater tanks as less ethical compared to freshwater tanks, but at least the numbers do show that there are far less saltwater tanks in general um, compared to It's way harder to keep a saltwater tank, too. Exactly. So I think there's like this inbuilt deterrent for Mm -hmm. saltwater tanks, thankfully. Talking about the welfare of fish is a contentious issue because there are debates. Oh my God, so many debates (laughs) about like whether their brains are able to experience pain, fear, and suffering. But then you also get into like the taxonomy. It's like, well, there are lots of different fish. What fish are you talking about? And right, and like taxonomy is actually basically made up. It is. It is. It may or may not map onto genealogical differences. And it's like, oh Jesus. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I have so much to fucking say about that too. Holy shit. (laughs) So. Like, that's a whole thing. And I think there are multiple perspectives to consider when you talk about home aquariums. So for some people, it Mm. will be the welfare of the fish, which I think definitely is important, but like to varying degrees. Right. But there's also biosecurity issues and environmental concerns. Wait, what? Are you going to talk about all of those? Yeah. Okay, good. Because I don't know what biosecurity means. I guess in terms of like invasive, like parasites and stuff like that, that kind of hitchhike on a lot of ornamental fish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm saying all of this, but there is some evidence to show that like home aquariums can like have positive like well being outcomes for humans, such as stress reduction and like an amount of loneliness reduction, which are important. But I couldn't find any sort of like comparison between like fish and like plants. Like I don't, because like I know that <laughs> yeah, I know that plants in your home can also provide positive sort of right. outcomes. So I'm just like I don't know how they stack up because I would argue that like having plants in your home is maybe better than having this tank. But I also know I, I really love animals. Like, right. and I love fish. Like, there's like something different about being able to see a creature like moving around on its own. Exactly. In your space. Like that is very calming sometimes. It is. And so like, I definitely don't want to discount and I understand. I, would, I guess I would still say like, cause I had considered getting a small saltwater tank recently, like in the last year, but my thought for it wasn't that I wanted saltwater fish. It was entirely that like, I would really love to have some like kelp yes. in a tank. Yes. <laughs> and to have kelp in a tank, you do need to have some amount of like other biota. So I was like, okay, I could keep kelp and like basically brine shrimp or some yeah, other type of yeah. like tiny, tiny shrimp. So I wonder if like, right, yeah, like don't tell people to go buy a, a beta fish. Maybe just tell them to go buy some like tiny shrimp. So I did actually Google this because I love shrimp. Oh. And that's what I was thinking too because I was like, okay, I had this exact same thought process, Sarah, where I was <laughs> like, oh, well, you could keep plants but then of course that they still require interactions with other living things and so you just get some shrimp Mm -hmm. and then i went googling on the ethics of keeping shrimp it seems like that it is actually probably it's probably way better than keeping like fish but they can like overbreed and so so many people like what do Mm. i do how do i ethically get rid of all these shrimp oh (laughs) no so many shrimp i know that there is a species of indigenous hawaiian shrimp and it is sort of endangered because it is indigenous to the islands and the islands like coastal waters are you know really susceptible to like climate change and pollution so i'm wondering right right, like basically that like you can keep them in tanks so like can you there's there's definitely ways to keep like saltwater shrimp 
Yes. Where you get to both like enjoy looking at a tiny little shrimp and you're not worried about like overbreeding brine shrimp and then having to get rid of a cloud of tiny shrimp babies. Yes. Yeah. And and again, this is like one of those things. So you're like, well, actually on the scale of it, I think that I'm comfortable with the information that I have and I feel like I can right. manage this and, and that I'm doing it as ethically as I can. Right. But it's very funny to me that we both have the same thought process of like plants, but then we need shrimp. <laughs> like, Right. It's honestly, it's just the logical next step after sea plants. It is. So some of the ethical concerns, I I titled this damage done. So non-indigenous species. I I distracted us with shrimp. That's okay. Yes. So I read a few different papers. There was this one paper that was talking about how like biodiversity declines in different areas. And this one was about Portugal specifically and the impact that ornamental fish trade had on biodiversity in Portugal. Okay. So very specific, but like this happens everywhere across the world Mm. that the importation of ornamental fish occurs. But yeah, so every year there are new species just being introduced. I did actually read an Australian one after this and Mm -hmm. a few years ago, yeah, there were 22 species, like new species of ornamental fish that had made its way into the freshwater system and had sort of taken root there basically so like had started just living in our waterways it makes sense that it would have happened in australia but not in the u.s in the u.s i have not heard of freshwater ornamental shrimp or ornamental fish i've got shrimp on the brain being an issue where like saltwater ornamental fish totally are Mm -hmm. but Australia has like tropical freshwater ways where the US doesn't really have like ah, that kind of yeah, right. That's interesting. So the freshwater ways in most of the US are very temperate. Mm-hmm. They go from pretty cold to pretty warm or pretty cold to moderately warm, which isn't conducive for a fish you would have in your home. Yes. Yeah. Where you expect it to want to live around seventy degrees all of the time always. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's, that's actually like, that is like oh that's an interesting point. I hadn't even considered that that would not be the case in other places. But apparently it's quite similar in Portugal too. Like they've found some non-Indigenous species sort of taking root in their waterways as well. But I think the Portugal, the, the difference was, was the difference, the Portugal study was more concerned with like parasites and pests okay. that are hitchhikers on the ornamental fish, oh, which yeah, yeah, yeah. is a problem all over the world. Yes. But also not contained to ornamental fish like obviously in our food and stuff that's an issue it's a big issue for fish introduced for tournament fishing is a big thing in parts of the u.s too where you will like dump fish into man-made or just closed off lakes and river systems (gasps) for people to fish for funsies my son and i watched a video of trout being dumped into a river last night and we were cackling because it was just it was like oh was it out of a plane no it was just like out of the back of a truck (gasps) Oh my gosh. Okay, well, I'm going to find a video of them dumping fish out of the back of a That's plane That's amazing. But yeah, so basically my point is, is like, you know, whether it's non-Indigenous species becoming a potential pest in our waterways or parasites that then infect Indigenous species. Yeah. Both of those are huge issues. The impact of those things from ornamental fish trade, like that's really under studied with the australian one they were talking about like they're finding these species in freshwater systems because a lot of the time people like fuck 
I don't want to look after this fish anymore. And they just like dump it in the water thinking it's fine. Ah, Which is bonkers to me. <laughs> right. So that is like such a foreign concept to me that you would just take an animal you were bored with and dump it in the water. They like... probably think that like, go free, go free with like no. Oh, I'm positive. No, you know, no second thought. <laughs> just like list it on Craigslist for free or something. Right? Like, Let someone on. else have it. At least in the Australian context, I found this next thing interesting because it was like, okay, well, we can regulate the ornamental fish trade, try and limit the amount of introduced species by just like closing what fish can be imported. And first of all, I listened to half of an episode (laughs) of a an aquarium podcast that will remain unnamed. I didn't get up too much of the ethics part because they were started ranting about cancel culture for too long and they even said well how come you can't buy this book this dr seuss book but you can buy mein kampf and i'm like well actually if you fucking like googled for an extra what the like mein kampf isn't sold without commentary and also the money for mein kampf goes to like holocaust memorials and yeah like, it takes yeah also oh they like stopped selling two co- like two yes. dr seuss books because the company that has the sole publishing right for dr seuss books found that it was not profitable oh to sell the ones that were really racist no it's cancel culture people just weren't buying them yeah i know this is the same with like the mrs potato head oh my gosh anyway but yeah so i i turned it off in rage but before that so I was like, okay, well, surely, like, okay, the argument is that, you know, ornamental fish trade right. can be highly regulated. But earlier in that episode, they had laughed about how all of them have a guy, and basically you can get any fish mm. you want. It's not yeah. necessarily legal. Yeah. And a huge part of this is it's actually, like, you know, it costs money to try and identify fish as they enter like through well like i mean at least in australia we do have the luxury of being a large island so everything theoretically goes through customs but they were saying that actually like the the regulation on the import of ornamental fish in australia is so vaguely written that it's like well actually you could just argue your way out of it or like say you're adhering to it and you can just be fine as somebody who looked into adopting a guinea pig and then realized i can't adopt a guinea pig because australian animal import laws are extremely specifically written to prevent the importation of any guinea pig really i'm i'm personally upset about this yeah i (laughs) there's a guinea pig rescue in hawaii Uh and i looked at like i got really attached to a couple very fat guinea pigs the law written for Australia, like, explicitly mm. states, in addition to just generally, like, no rodents, like, no guinea pigs. And I was just like, well, no guinea pigs, but you can have, like, basically you can you can import thoroughbred horses and <laughs> ornamental fish is what I'm learning. Yes. But you can't import, like, a rescued guinea or, pig. like, maybe you're not supposed to import some ornamental fish, but they're not very right. careful about how they worded it. So it's like, you know, yeah. people love to find... Well, if a fish is, like 
young enough to yes, like, how do you if it's just fried their larval how, stages yeah. look the same although i did find another thing here sorry i know i'm ranting but i just found so many things that were interesting i was ranting about the world <laughs> and that was not in my You're... notes that was entirely just i don't like <laughs> there are two issues sort of with regulations and imports of ornamental fish which whether you're talking mm-hmm. about like the parasites that are coming on them or where they're sourced or like just introducing new species mm. so obviously the law isn't written well as it stands also as i mentioned like not everyone cares about those sorts of things and even they're like well i have access to it so uh. right there's like a weird huge libertarian streak with a lot of aquaculture dudes holy shit i am not surprised only because of the tiger king yes shit that everybody was talking about where it's like oh anybody who feels like they are like they have the god-given right to own rare animals or exotic animals or whatever is like they're an asshole i don't care who they are if they think they can own this thing that nobody else is like allowed to own for very valid reasons Mm -hmm. they're a dick yeah it's also just like a such a colonial vibe as well which is like more of a sort of it it probably wouldn't deter me from like having a fish tank but like i could see people you know i i do understand that there's a need Mm. for white people in particular having ownership over certain spaces So basically, one thing that could happen if, like, we really wanted to limit importation of, like, new non-Indigenous species, there was this 2012 study that tried DNA barcoding for ornamental Mm. fish species, and in 2012, it was able to identify the species of fish, like, quite rapidly using DNA barcoding, success rates of correctly IDing them were 90 to 99%. And that was in 2012. Wow. And I'm just like, I'm sure that technology is way more like sophisticated these days. No, definitely. So when I was in my undergraduate oceanography, not marine biology, (laughs) DNA tracing is still really important because if you're looking at, so things like sea sponges, and plankton are more closely observed by oceanographers, by biological or chemical oceanographers, than they are by marine biologists. Huh. And so you need you need DNA tracing if you're going to try to figure yeah. out like what a species is. This came up a lot in terms of looking at paleo-oceanography. So you're looking at fossilized remains of sea sponges or you know, like fossilized remains of anything that produces a shell. So coccolithophores are a type of plankton that form a, a calcium-based shell. Oh, cool. You can extract DNA from some of these like relic bits of animals or from sediment. And you can look at the DNA to understand the makeup of different ocean communities. That is so fucking cool. And I had instructors who would tell me that like, you know, in 2012, when this fish barcoding was happening... <laughs> It would take months and it would be like $100 per DNA processing. Jeez Louise. And the time wasn't because it took that time to process it. It was just like the backlog, right? Backlog is crazy. But by the time I was going through my undergraduate in 2017 to 2020, that had already come down to like $10 per sample. Yeah. A week turnaround, sometimes less if you like, you know, if you know a guy, if you like have a good rapport with somebody at the DNA lab. Mm-hmm. So, right, like, if it was already able to identify 95% of these fish, yeah, it, like, now you should be able to do that for, right? Cheaper, like, faster, more a, reliable. A tenth, right, exactly. Yes, yeah. 
this should be something that is just very available if a government entity, if like customs wanted to use yes, it. Yes, yes. And and that's what I kind of wrote. And that was sort of like in my positive notes thing. So like the obviously the big concern are parasites because they can make the fish that are already here like really sick. But also, yeah, introducing yeah. new species that are then go into our waterways. Yeah, so if you can sort of be like, hey, actually this one you're not supposed to have this or maybe this was sold to you as this species but we recognize that this is actually a different species like that could be really important really beneficial and also could stop grifters in the process like if you want to make like i guess like a fiscal argument for it like well actually there are these like people who are scamming (laughs) by selling that is definitely a thing (laughs) just for the oh my gosh i'll get into when i get into the coral section apparently that's huge in the coral market just like grifters everywhere so there's that which i found i thought was cool in case it wasn't clear to our listeners like one reason you don't want ornamental fish in our waterways is that they you know may become pests and compete with native species which especially well everywhere but like in australia we Mm. do have more ability to sort of control that so that's something that we want to try and maintain so now we get into like where someone actually sources their fish from. So even if it's a correctly identified fish that they know that they're like allowed to have, how do you decide what is ethical? And basically, uh, this is tricky. So this is where I was just (laughs) like, I don't have an answer. So most articles will talk about, you know, you should actually go for captive bread because right. oh, this whole... wild caught cyanide fishing, like where they stun a whole group of fish, mm. not necessarily kill them, but then they can just collect all these fish up. With cyanide? Yeah. And if they use electricity to stun fish to study them, like they do that with salmon when they're studying, not to like be an asshole to the salmon, but basically if you need to like assess the health of a salmon population, you can use mild electric shocks in the water. Oh, cool. To just sort of like startle the fish for a well, second. Well, that's probably better then... than cyanide. And, and better than, like, trying to flail about with a net, mm-hmm. essentially, while they're still awake. You just sort of stun them a little bit. You can pick them up with a net without them, like, getting hurt in the process. But cyanide sounds like not an exact art. Yeah, well, exactly. it was the... Is it, like, Monterey Bay? Is that the place that you really liked going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Monterey yeah. Bay. Yeah. So I think it was on their website. They had a blog post about, you know, ways oh, okay. to source fish more ethically mm. and they're saying oh, okay yeah yeah oh, and yeah. they were saying that you know one of the big arguments for why you shouldn't get a saltwater tank is like not a, only is it like harder to sort of like maintain it is a definite stand against cyanide fishing which is a practice oh, that still happens and it is banned internationally but obviously not everyone cares yeah, right when has that ever stopped people exactly and also side note with the cyanide thing something i found interesting was when we were on this mudflats tour, the first thing that our guide showed us was this seed from a fruit from this big tree, a tree that I've seen so many times before in my life. And he was like, if you dry this and sort of like process it a certain way, what you can do if you're feeling lazy one day, you throw this into the water and there's cyanide in it and it stuns the fish. And then you can just pick up the fish there you go scoop them up and i was just like holy shit i I guess apple seeds have cyanide in them too just yeah that still feels like 
because of the way like home processing of most chemical substances and plants works like that still feels less like likely to accidentally poison an entire batch of fish than yes and yeah any pill or powder that you're gonna buy online where you have to like hope somebody has processed the cyanide to the point that it's pure Mm -hmm. and then after processing it to the point that it's pure a thing that is right like you're not most places can't just legally process cyanide a poison you then have to trust that they have appropriately measured out the correct amount of this very toxic substance before they've sold it back to you because they could either overdo it if they're being lazy or they could cut it with something else that could also be harmful for the environment in different ways totally totally that would be my like concerns here yeah yeah and and that's what they're saying they're like okay so even if you know you're not too concerned about you know a large amount of wild fish being caught with cyanide but it's actually no it's not just the fish it's all the other things around it including reef yeah and yeah, right. yeah so it's like there, it, there's a larger you know sort of mm. environmental issue it's not just with this like I, i'm not trashing our guides at like right. first nations ways of fishing because like well and it's not it's not even about like the cyanide method it's self it's more about like the type of people who would use this with like if they're just you know it's one of those things where like you can keep harping on profit motive but it's true where Mm -hmm. like if somebody's only motivating factor is that they really like they get a lot of money when they sell you a certain type of fish they're gonna be less concerned with doing it in a way that is is safe so I mm-hmm. right like I could totally see somebody who goes out and uses a cyanide method and has like done it reliably who is very responsible in hydrology and in like fish ecology where you put chemicals into a water system matters yes you could put the cyanide into part of a water system of a like a watershed where it's mostly over bedrock where there isn't a lot of marine algae or plant life or other fish life there where by the time that cyanide like dissipated through the rest of the water it was less potent it Mm -hmm. had like spread out a lot more and been watered down or you could dump it into like a bay where the water isn't flowing very fast where there is a lot of other marine life Mm -hmm. so like the difference is going to be people who are thinking about that and kind of like the long-term effects on an ecosystem and people who are just looking to make a lot of money pretty quickly. So this actually like ties up with a huge issue that I have and that is really difficult to sort of pass, both in terms of this cyanide fishing and my next door neighbor, she is part of a coral restoration project. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah, she's awesome. She's a engineer and amazing but she was saying how she recently was in the philippines in quite a remote area and she was on the boat Mm. and she kept hearing these loud bangs and she's like what the fuck is that yeah oh my gosh like dynamite fishing yes dynamite fishing that's the one the reason they were out there was because you want to see like this basically there's a clean slate on these yeah. places where reefs have been and so it's like they want right. to see how their technology goes and so like, there was a reason they were there but she was like this place because like there was no major city for her to stay in so like as remote as they could possibly get and yet there are also people throwing like explosives into the water but it's also this really poor areas like main source mm. of income and it's so fucking horrible and there are definitely other places like in micronesia like there's a lot of places where it's like okay well actually most of 
this town's income comes from fishing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the demand, you know, they get more money if they do the dynamite fishing, but also they're still in poverty. But also yeah. if they stop doing it, then they get less money. And it's just this, ho- basically what I'm trying to say is like, it's like there are these really awful practices happening, but sometimes they're being performed by people who are victims of colonization and capitalism. And it's that that's where I'm like, well, right. You know, they're not the ones who would be getting the most money from this. But what I can do is choose to not buy those fish. Like right. or like at, at the very least choose to not have a saltwater tank and decrease that demand at least on my end. I can't solve the economic crisis in like obviously that end like whether that fishing is happening but I could also choose to not participate in it to some extent as well if that kind of makes sense. And to be aware of it in a way that if there is anything that comes up where you can pressure a local politician who has a bigger impact Mm -hmm. to to do that to be able to say like okay well you know in a local election I have a candidate who I might be able to reach and talk to about like how are we impacting these sales overseas how are we like encouraging this kind of like irresponsible and also like really harmful behavior because those populations that are doing that fishing makes me think of the the UN blue report that came out in 2020 I believe that talked about how illegal commercial overfishing off the coast of Africa actually led to the Ebola outbreak oh my god it was because that's right Yes, I mean, yeah. So I listened to that episode. <laughs> well, that and like see seriously, like that shitty, like fake ass documentary mm-hmm. completely ignored this. Mm-hmm. Big companies overfishing off of coastal areas in areas like that have not only like culturally been reliant on fish as a main source of protein, but also like obviously there are areas where like if you live near the coast. It is both like the easiest, the most convenient, and also the healthiest for you and the ecosystem to rely on fish as a source of protein. Yeah. In these areas, when demand for fish goes up commercially, but then that fish is shipped away to other areas, the fish populations can can die off, or at least like can dip very much in how how many fish are available. People will turn to other food sources, and that is oh, like in Africa, yeah. they have been able to like. De- directly tie the lack of available fish for consumption in coastal West Africa, like in a very specific area, <laughs> to looking to other food sources, which include bats, which include monkeys, which include these like animals that like, you know, my like shitty boomer parents would say that just like backwards people in Africa, that's what they do. They eat bat brains. They don't. They don't do that. Yeah. They're only doing that because wealthy people in white countries are consuming all of the like all of the very like popular and tasty fish from that area Mm -hmm. so yeah (laughs) it's so tricky and yeah it's like this all all this shit just comes back to how fucked you know global systems have become because of the way like wealth inequality persists globally exactly and so talking about farmed versus captivity I've decided you have to have me on to talk about coral because I have just so much to say about coral. <laughs> coral and mangroves. I've got Josie on the docket, yes. <laughs> this is 2021 paper called Corals in the City, Cultivating Ocean Life in the Anthropocene? Anthropocene, yeah. Anthropocene. The human era. 
Yeah, the human error, that's the one. And so it challenged the way that we divide things into saltwater, freshwater, farm versus captivity. And it used coral as like a very interesting way of sort of like challenging these sort of binaries. Mm. But the reason I bring that up is because they sort of noted that there are some corals that are exported that are neither farmed nor wild caught. So what? (laughs) Well, this actually applies to not just coral, but also like Mm. some fish stuff as well. But it's like particularly, you know, when there are certain species that, you know, have these life cycles, the natural migration and reproduction of fish mean that like a number of like eggs might float into a certain way. And then sort of you keep some and then you sort of like let them grow in this semi-contained space that's like okay. not necessarily farmed i guess it's kind of like oysters right where they're still kind yeah. of the way yeah the way if people aren't aware the way you farm oysters i understand what you're saying now the life cycle of corals is really oh, weird they're part of the family medusae which means that as they go through their life cycle if you've heard anything about coral organisms you've probably heard the term polyp <laughs> polyp is like the adult life stage of a coral before that at the university of washington which is my alma mater they have a a lab that attempts to cultivate corals in a lab space i don't know what to tell you i don't know how to describe it it's very difficult because like nobody's totally sure how corals like fuck basically <laughs> how they release <laughs> gametes and how those gametes meet and then form new corals but the life cycles will look really fucking weird. I don't know how else to describe it. They will form what looks like a kind of a weird plant. And then that plant will drift around and eventually perhaps settle on the seafloor or perhaps not settle on the seafloor. <laughs> There's multiple routes a coral can take at the beginning of its life. And if in one of those routes it decides to cling to a man-made structure such as the way oysters are farmed where you have a float on top of the water that kind of looks like a pallet like a wooden pallet with shit dangling down like a rope with a weight sometimes like oyster babies will decide to latch onto the ropes hanging down from these pallets and that is how you farm oysters you don't like put a bunch of oysters in a tank and hope for the best you kind of put shit out into the wild you do the same thing with a lot of seaweeds you can't like cultivate seaweeds in a tank you have to cultivate them in the wild yeah okay so that that makes sense to me now where it's like you are putting something into the wild and then waiting to see if wild corals or oysters or seaweeds then decide to grow on your man-made object that you will collect yeah although there was like there's some villages where they sort of put nets up in certain areas and so like they still allow to keep out predators yeah and but like to even allow fish to grow to a certain size oh yeah 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 and then you know keeping them alive to then export as ornamental fish but because Mm -hmm. they're locals they're quite knowledgeable about you know what a normal population size looks like so you don't want to take all of them like it's again I, i i think about some of the things I've learned just from like learning about First Nations ways of like you know their farming techniques Hawaiians have the same thing which makes sense a lot of Hawaiians and Aboriginal Australians both like developed their culture and like often like had their people like come from Oceania yeah so right they all would have had some sort of like cultural knowledge of how to make a 
fish pond is just what they're called in like in Hawaii. Like you have like native fish ponds, which doesn't sound very impressive, but actually means that it's like it's been an area where that's been happening, where they've been setting up rocks with tiny entryways mm-hmm. in a to make a an artificial bay where like baby fish can come in, and then when they get big enough, they can't leave. Yeah, and like trade, like mm-hmm. you know, trade occurs. So it's like this mm-hmm. knowledge about how to sustainably do these things, and I guess that's what I'm trying to say is like. As it stands, you could say no wild caught and no salt water. But I do think that if actually there was like this holistic approach to how to, yeah, you know, look after these fish and these populations, I think it can be done. Yeah, to manage like community populations. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So that's kind of where like, you know, I guess you could easily say only do captivity bred. But there is an issue with captivity bred too. And so something that people will say, especially those who profit from captivity bred, like farmed ornamental fish, is like they say that they're not vectors for disease. That's simply not true. There's no evidence to back that up. That's not a thing. That feels like saying like a prison isn't a vector for disease because all the inmates can't leave. And it's like, well, well, no. (laughs) And it's like you're forgetting about everything else. All the things that it interacts with, including air right. and water. Yeah, exactly. And the air, or like, you know, people can get like the cold just by sitting in their house. Or not like the cold, but like they can get sick just by sitting alone in their house. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really. <laughs> yeah. And there's also this thing. So, like, some people have made the argument that, well, you know, if there's an endangered species, I should be able to farm it because then that will help the population. But actually, like, at least in terms of ornamental fish, if they're farmed, you're, whether intentionally or not, the gene pool is smaller. And right. farmed ornamental fish tend to be more aggressive. So actually, if you put them back out in the ocean... Oh, no. They're not... They're probably going to just, like... Actively, like, lower the population. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And that genetic diversity isn't happening as much and it's just like you know as soon as I read that that was Monterey Bay or whatever I keep wanting to say Montgomery Bay for some reason (laughs) like that was in their article and I was like yeah of course that makes so much sense it's you know because anything that we've sort of you know domesticated including dogs it's for different characteristics well it's the same for ornamental fish like you know whether it's corals or fish like these things will be bred to have the right. more preferable. When you think about like betta fish, I don't know about. Yes, other that's what I was going to talk in the US, about. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> betta fish and goldfish probably are like if you think of a fish you would just have on a counter at home. Like those are the two breeds, mm-hmm. and they don't look like that in nature, y'all. No. They like those are very especially betas, but also some species of goldfish are like very specifically bred both for yes. aggression and also for like for betta fish in particular for having those really long flowy fins which and they're beautiful they're beautiful but like duh in a stream or a pond where they would normally live like you wouldn't survive very long if you had no. like these like fucking pennants hanging off of your head and your torso so I know I'm ranting here. Basically, listeners, thank you for holding on for this rant. I will sum up my <laughs> points in a moment. But one of my like hard and fast things actually is betta fish. So betta fish, they're sold at, usually in cups in pet stores. Right. And oh, my God. Because 
they are able to breathe air because they have a very specific, I think it's called like the labyrinth organ oh, or something like that. They can breathe air and that's sort of why they go up to the top and can like gulp air. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. And there's this myth that they don't require much care. Right. But that would be why they can like, they can survive longer than other fish in a a bowl that isn't aerated, right? You, that you just like oh, fucking nailed my next okay. sentence okay, and okay, said okay. it way Sorry. more simply than I was going to. No, no, that's great. It's great. You've got your not a marine biologist, not a marine biologist cap on. Yeah. So yeah, like because of this organ, these fish are able to consume oxygen from oh, the wow. air and okay. therefore can survive at oxygen levels that other species would die in. Sort of as you just said. If it's not aerated, well, they actually can live for longer. But what happens is that because of this, it's very easy for someone to see betta fish in a store. And these fish are actually probably not at their best, struggling and quite lethargic. And then, you know, they get them and they're not improving because, like, they're just like, oh, well, it's sold in a cup. I don't need to do much more. Oh, yes. To, like, take care of this thing. And that's just not true. Beta fish need very specific temperatures and substrates and activities and rest and Heidi pop. I like they all love fish, Heidi holes. to be fair. Yes, exactly. And yeah, as as you said, like the pretty ones, like no one wants to buy like the female beta fish because oh, they yeah. don't have the, they're like the big pendulums. Yeah, like, yeah but. So beta fish, they're beautiful. They're really beautiful. And I do think that someone that did enough like research and stuff like that could take really good care of them. But I think just like as a hard and fast rule, like stay away. Oh my god! Because they're also like, even though places aren't supposed to fight them, they have long been and right. definitely still continue to be, you know, instead of cockfighting, it's beta fish fighting. Right, yeah. Like even if you're not buying into that industry by like buying you you know it's it's the pet shop dilemma where like you think you're rescuing an animal because you see it's in this really sad condition but really you're paying into this system that now is like you have increased the profit of you have proven the profitability Mm -hmm. of selling a really sad looking betta fish in a cup because you think you can save it and yes even if you do manage to rescue that pet you've given that company money and proven that they should sell more and if you don't manage to rescue that pet you're probably going to go back and buy another one yes and so they're and, yeah okay the aquarium podcast that i did listen to i have a few conflicted feelings about them mm-hmm. so these people all of them clearly have a profit like they have a vested interest mm, okay. in something to do with aquariums right and right. at least one or two of the hosts definitely own a pet shop. Ooh, okay. I'm, I'm not very happy about that. But yeah. what they were saying, what they were saying is that, like, and they, this is when they were talking passionately. And before they got into the cancel culture thing, <laughs> I actually was, like, fairly okay with what they were saying. They right. were quite passionately saying, no, the onus is on us to mm. source these fish right. from places that we feel like we can comfortably sell to people but we should only sell certain fish like don't let people buy a range of fish that can't live together like yeah. the onus they were saying that the onus is on them to educate the customers and to direct them into something that would be more in line with their lifestyle yeah they were talking about how one of the customers wanted to buy like these certain fish that require very specific care and they were actually like hey can i like give you this information 
and then come back and talk to me if you still want to go ahead with it. And he never saw her again. Yeah. And I was like, well, actually, like, if he was just about profit, he wouldn't have done that. Right. But also, like, uh, yeah, but I was also so conflicted because he's still part of this system, you know, and that person could just go to another place. Exactly. And be like, I'm not talking to that wordy, that mouthy broad again. Well, and like, exactly. Like, if the attitude is, and coming from two people who were mad about cancel culture and Dr. Seuss books, if the attitude (laughs) wasn't, let me help learn with you. Like, this is a big thing Mm. with, like, I've encountered and I think about a lot with, like, environmental and science education is, like, you can't have an attitude of, I am telling you because I know better. Because everybody, Mm. like, universally will fucking shut down if some guy at a pet shop is, like, you dumb idiot. You don't understand Mm. how these fish work. So, like, I could see that being kind of the, like, I I could see a lot of this conversation coming from a place of, like, uh, unintentional snobbery. Like, I know better yeah, than and, you. And, uh, yeah, I'm not going back to that guy. I'm buying my right, fish from like, some other person. I could see a version of this conversation where it's like, let's learn together. Like, let's learn mm-hmm. together. What like what, Yeah, like yeah. what sort of system that you have and what time and attention you can afford to give to this aquarium. And like, as we learn together, we can like build together a system that will, that will function together and be like healthy. Mm-hmm. But that takes emotional involvement. That's like yes. hard. And that's not going to be 100% of your customers because right. you won't have the time to do that to all your customers. Right. So I definitely was like, okay, you sound better than, you know, people who work at pet stores right. who just, they just want to earn their money. And For sure. that's also understandable too. We all live in a society. Right. Like I don't blame the worker at a pet, at like a pet co yeah. or pet smart. I blame the CEO of a pet co or a pet smart. Yes. And so it was just this, again, I think that kind of sums up the messiness of this topic for me is like, I think that it is so ambiguous to me that I personally don't feel comfortable having an aquarium. I think that there are some hard and fast rules that will maybe shortcut your way to a more ethical, quote, like, you know, slightly more ethical aquarium, but not necessarily. Because also when you go to a a pet store you don't really know where those things were sourced and the person who's supplying to the pet store might not be honest like you don't it's just such a huge huge global market that it is so hard to find the origins of it's it's almost like the only way like there could be a system where you could go to like obviously if you're going to catch the so i have co-workers who my coworker's wife works for pet shops. She has worked as an aquarist at pet shops for decades. When they have their saltwater tanks, which they have several of, they go out and source the fish themselves. They do not oh, cool. purchase from, right? They don't purchase from pet shops. They don't purchase from like big aquarium chains mm-hmm. because she has these contacts, like literally industry contracts. She is able to reach out to people who either breed the fish on their own or she has a pretty good understanding of like i'm in hawaii she understands the local aquaculture and ecosystem where she knows that there are seasons she will have like she will go out on a dive first off she will know what season it is know what is breeding or what was breeding a few months ago and will have juveniles she has a understanding of i am going out because i have a tank that has these fish in it I wish to have Mm -hmm. this other fish if I can find one and 
she will go out and like while she is diving like very specifically catch a fish so she is like sourcing them herself with an understanding of the ecosystem with an understanding of like i am not removing a fish that is endangered or Mm -hmm. is vital to this area totally um that reminds me the very first thing i did when we were sort of thinking about this episode was i was googling like the finding nemo thing to determine whether or not the diver did anything wrong turns out he didn't oh he didn't so this is why instead of like maybe writing a more cohesive (laughs) like you know script we're just gonna watch finding nemo actually (laughs) yeah i like looked through the like marine authority Mm. regulations Mm. and i was like yeah actually there are certain areas where you can collect fish yeah and if it's these particular species at this mm-hmm. certain time, mm-hmm. and it's actually not harmful because that's what First Nations people, they've been collecting yep. fish for thousands of years. And all of that okay. is based on like population numbers. So like population numbers will go up and down in a sinusoidal pattern. So like you'll have increases, like blooms is generally what I call them in oceanography. I don't know what marine biologists might call them, but like you'll have a bloom population. Yeah, blooms where, like, make sense. Right in a few months after the spring plankton bloom, you have a bunch of fish that will feed. After they feed, they will spawn and they will have a bunch of kids. A bunch of those baby fish within the first few weeks to years will be eaten. And so if you are going in there at the same time that they are being like naturally predated and you are a single human catching a couple of fish by hand, you're probably fine totally kosher yeah you're like you are part of the natural system of like rebounds and sinks of population numbers so like yes but you know if you're not doing that i yeah mm, unless you're getting them like off of craigslist which or like secondhand (laughs) or like which is totally a thing in some places you can find people who like don't want to tank do that that is actually rescuing a fish yeah no shade on that honestly like yeah yeah, no, so that that's like an interesting thing. And so I guess to sum it up, yeah, I I don't even know if my own hard and fast rules hold up <laughs> in that in that case. What I will say, if we're using Finding Nemo mm-hmm. as a test case, mm-hmm. you could argue that the diver did nothing wrong by taking Nemo. He was a dentist, so he did that wrong. Let's be clear. He did that wrong. And he also didn't provide a very good habitat for yeah. Nemo. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see any anemones in that tank. Right. So as too many fish for that small tank. Very, yeah, definitely too many fish. Definitely not a native looking ha- habitat. Yeah. The fish also were yes. all like individual one-offs of one species, which like that is not. That's not good. Live. Yeah. That's. <laughs> hmm. Could do like a, a a bonus episode of critiquing the setup of Finding Nemo <laughs> dudes tank. <laughs> I, I have so much more to say, but I'm gonna save it for when you decide to invite me on for coral chat. <laughs> I will. I have a list. I am. I am making a list of like Josie episodes I need to write and research. <laughs> I have so fucking much to say. I mean, if you uh, ever want to is- like, if you, I trust. I know that you are really good about finding like academic research and vetting it and looking at the methods and like not just looking at an abstract or a pop science journal so if you ever wanted to just like teach me about a marine biology topic in particular like you are welcome to lead an episode because people think i'm lying when i say i'm not a marine biologist but it is true i am not a marine biologist 
oh no i believe you fully i know it's like it's very it was very confusing to me the first time somebody sent me like a wink emote after i like said i'm not a marine biologist because i'm like no i have no idea everything i learned about fish i learned through wikipedia yeah oh by the way that reminds me because i've been listening to your podcast sort of out in the lounge room and robert's been around Mm -hmm. so he's listening in and i think last night was we were listening to the wave like how waves are formed sort of thing and oh because he's a physicist right he's a physicist Ah. so he was like really he was really enjoying your way of like describing why waves are like this really cool thing and to like because like all waves are like yeah it's just like a way for waves to be visualized yeah like waves sort of behave in the same sort of way if that makes sense yeah and yeah and i was like freaking out because i was like i i guess this is what i'm trying to say is i'm complimenting you on your science communication because it finally clicked for me and then robert was like yeah yeah like because there's someone who deals with you know light yeah obviously that's a lot of waves yeah yeah like he teaches like the math behind waveforms all the oh time God, that so, is and he was like yeah so hardening really the minute you mentioned that he was listening i was like oh oh no somebody who knows what they're talking about no no he like he everything you said he didn't he would only oh i'd only be like is what the hell and he'd be like yeah like oh that makes me feel so much like i do live in a perpetual state of imposter syndrome where i just assume somebody who is actually knowledgeable will will listen to an episode and be like wow i really really fucked that one up so well that's good because robert also feels that same way all the time (laughs) so it's like if there's two imposters boosting each other up right then that can only be good I think so. That cancels Yeah. It cancels it out and then actually multiplies the like validity of a statement. Yes. Somehow. So to to sort of wrap it up, Sarah, do you think that aquariums are ethical? I think fish belong in a natural habitat, but there are times when you can visit an aquarium that has done the work. And is actually focused on, like, truly and at its core, focused on education and conservation. But you need to put in the footwork yourself as well to to try to suss out if that's the case ahead of time. I, I think that actually also sums up my perspective on home aquariums, too. Like, I think that they, the fish should belong in their natural environment. But I think that, like, every part in that chain can sort of you know, do what they can to, to make right. it m- as kosher as possible. Oh, sorry. That reminds me. Also, my last thing is like, I don't want to make this like a whole personal responsibility thing as well Right. when it comes to home aquariums. And I think that also like what I'm remembering, I didn't write this down, but there was like this specific type of fish mm-hmm. that had been an ornamental fish export for a really long time mm-hmm. from Brazil. And it also like was the main economy oh for this area for this very specific village and then they banned the exportation of this ornamental fish and people were like yay yay because it's like a special fish and then they decided to build a fucking dam over this part there it is Yep. And so it's like, well, this is going to fucking wipe out the fish population anyway. Good. And work. also take away. Yes. And I was like, and like, I had to like walk away after reading that because I'm like, 
nothing matters. Nothing matters. Oh. <laughs> like <laughs> every effort at like educating people in my life, either like one on one or in podcast form or like on Twitter, whatever. It is always like the bottom line every single time. Like every time <laughs> is look at the actual goal of what you want to achieve. Yes. And like look yep. at the actual forces like like one to many tiers behind the force that you are complaining about and what is actually going on there. And this is true for aquariums, this is true for that kind of like fish conservation and like banning different imports and exports. It's true for the <laughs> carceral state. Like Mm-hmm. Just always look at, like, what is the actual stated, like, stated and then, like, underlying intended goal. Mm-hmm. And who who actually benefits. And when you look at those two that, things, oh, right? Like, you just got my oh. catchphrase. Fuck. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, like, no, yeah. Like, 100%. Bumping. Like, who is the people? The people in Brazil are not benefiting from banning the export of this fish. And the fish isn't nope. benefiting from the banning of the export of this fish. But whoever put that dam up is definitely benefiting mm-hmm. benefiting from this. So 100%. Yeah. So I guess yeah, like although I gave all this advice for what is more or less ethical, ultimately ultimately it's like well, what what we do know is that you know, the destruction of the environment yeah. is 100% unethical. Yeah. Yeah, but I've heard again, also to not end on a doomer note, we just do what we can. That's yeah, all we can fully. to maintain our sanity. So Do what you can and like do the steps to like look one or two levels deeper when you can. When that information is out there, like if you start doing that, you're doing good. And then obviously when you can pressure like actual governments and corporations, like they're the ones yeah. responsible. So do what you can. And there. also no, they're not ethical, but like home aquariums not necessarily but also they can bring joy and you know what that that's important too yeah right the person in your life who has an aquarium is not like the ultimate evil here yeah not gonna not gonna cancel them and also like yeah when every part of participating in a society Mm. is unethical if you do if you do find joy from it yeah just just do your best i guess sorry if this offends (laughs) Anyway, I could talk to you for fucking hours about all of this stuff. So thank you for coming on. And I can't wait to talk to you again about this stuff. Of course, thank I am so excited it. to have you, like the prospect of having you on for Corals and Mangroves. Oh my God. I'm sorry we I spent so much to three say. hours talking about aquariums. I don't oh. know how you're going to edit this down. Good luck. Yes. Luckily, I now outsource a lot of that. Ooh. So not my problem. A good luck um, editor but, of this podcast. Yeah. Before... I let you go. Where can listeners find you? In like five minutes, they're going to be able to find me in my bathroom because I need to pee really bad. Sorry. But until then, no, that's not your problem. <laughs> you can find me uh, in my podcast. It came from the sea. That should be out on pretty much every podcast platform. Nobody has told me it's not out on a pa- podcast platform that they use so far. So that's good. You can find us on Twitter at it came from the sea. You can also find me in my much less focused and more unhinged Twitter on barnacle bitch without the eye you can find us on patreon if at some point you decide to throw money our way it's mostly me a non-binary person with a bachelor's in oceanography talking about the ocean with my friends who are even less qualified than i am 
So don't <laughs> feel like you need to have a background in environmental science to come to this podcast. The point is explicitly to talk to people who don't have a lot of a background in environmental science. It's a very good podcast. Oh, thank you. Yes. But yeah, thank you so much. And I will be on your podcast sometime in the future. Yes. Ill-advised and misinformed, our half-baked opinions will be performed. Are you ready? Is the mic on? Welcome to the Hilton Time.